This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 37. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Teetham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having And thanks everyone for listening today. You can find us every week on YouTube with new episodes as well as Google, Spotify, Apple, and anywhere else you might be listening to podcasts. So be sure to check us out and subscribe to our show and to our channel as well. And uh, we've got an exciting show for you today here on episode 37. Uh, first of all, we're going to talk about uh, per our usual recent trend to talk about digital transformation trends and different topics that are relevant to the industry today. So we'll do sort of a rapid fire speed round run through of some of those trends and headlines in the digital transformation space. And then uh, we're going to have a special guest on the show today, uh, John Belden from Upper Edge, uh, which is an organization that helps clients maximize their value out of their system integrators during digital transformation. And uh, he's going to be on the show talking about some of the reasons why transformations fail. He's going to dive into a couple case studies about uh, recent ERP failures, and then we're going to talk about why those projects fail and why other projects tend to fail in the digital transformation space. So stay tuned for that. John will be on the show later today. And then finally, in our third segment uh, of the podcast episode today, we will have a few different clips. We're going to walk through uh, recent video clips that our team at Third Stage put together uh, related to a number of different topics. Uh, and this is sort of part of our, our three series that uh, we did a couple weeks ago. We did something similar where as part of our three-year anniversary, we put out a, a series of videos. that are short clips that talk about three tips for different topics. And uh, in those clips today, we'll talk about uh, three red flags for uh, digital transformation failure. We'll talk about three tips for negotiating with software vendors as well as three hard truths about digital transformation. So we're going to talk about those later in the show today. Uh, but before we get to that and before we get to our, our special guest later in the show, uh, what are some of the trends you're seeing in the market, uh, Kyler, that are worthy of discussion here today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I wanted to start with a VentureBeat article um, that talked about digital transformation spending. So the metric they gave is actually last year, companies spent $700 billion on some type of digital transformation, but the results are really lagging and a lot of different reasons for that. Um, one I wanted to dive into because I'd actually never heard you say this one before, um, which is why I kind of wanted to chat with you about it because that's kind of weird because um, usually most of the time you've covered a lot of this content. But they talk about um, needing a digital adoption platform. So I'll read you kind of the context behind it. Um, they give the solution a holistic approach that combines a practical understanding of how to apply organizational change management, some degree of experienced operational digital transformation, and most importantly, the right digital adoption platform. So they call it DAP. 
So I wondered if you could kind of let us know if you've ever heard of that before or talk us through any sort of experience you've had with a DAP or a digital adoption plan as a best practice for ensuring the value and the ROI out of, out of your transformation. Yeah, it, it is a, an important tool for for adoption. And you're right, we haven't talked about it here on the show. And I don't think I've done any YouTube videos on the topic, but it is something that comes up semi regularly with with clients. Uh, and digital adoption platforms are essentially, I would say technology agnostic in that they can be used for uh, deployment of any sort of technology. In most cases, some tech, some adoption platforms are specific to one type of uh, technology rollout, but a lot of them are agnostic, just like we are as an organization. And that they can be used in a number of different capacities and different types of ERP systems, CRM systems and whatnot. And essentially what it does is it, it's not really a learning tool, although it can be used for learning and sort of that pre-implementation end user training, but it's more valuable in my opinion in the post-implementation world, sort of that real-time help, uh, providing real-time help for end users that might be stuck in a process flow or they're on a screen that they've never seen before. And it's sort of like an on-demand uh, real-time tutorial and, and walkthrough of how to use the system and and you know what what to watch out for and that sort of thing. So it is a, a platform that or a, a type of technology that's becoming more common, but uh, it is something that's oftentimes underlooked or, or overlooked and underrated, I should say. And so uh, yeah, that's that's the general gist of of my uh, not experience, but my uh, uh, perception of those tools. Yeah, and that's so interesting. So when we talk about digital adoption, let's unpack that just for a minute in the actual definition of what that means for a company going or undergoing a transformation. So when we talk about adoption, what exactly does that mean in regards to kind of the people side of the business? Yeah, so it's a it's a there's a fine line or a um, just a gray area, big difference between. Uh, learning and sort of training how to use a system and actual adoption and use of the technology. And those are two, it may sound like the same thing, but they're slightly different, but but it's an important subtlety in that, you know, again, you, you can train people on technologies, you can teach them how to do different keystrokes and whatnot, but that doesn't really matter. Even if they pass a competency test and you measure some sort of competency test that they take after that uh, end user training, that doesn't really matter if they're not actually able to conduct and complete workflows and transactions and processes and whatever it is you expect them to do, um, which by the way, oftentimes involves more than just using an ERP system or a specific technology. Oftentimes it involves touch points to other systems or other workflows, other people, approval processes and things like that. So having an adoption, a digital adoption platform should be able to walk you through that entire process flow that may weave in and out of different technologies and manual processes and approvals and all that stuff. Um, so it is, a, it is a bit different than uh, just training. It's more, are we actually getting value out of the system and are, are we actually using the technology the way it was meant to be used? Gotcha. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense when it comes to just the overall behavior of the employee. So this article actually mentioned a specific statistic that talked about there was 54% of companies reported having resistance when it comes to digital adoption from their overall communities. So is that something you would build into that um, preliminary change plan or that strategy that's so important to develop 
and and ensure success in the beginning of the transformation. You mean the digital adoption platform? Would that get built into a change strategy? No, um, the actual adoption plan. So that could be part of it because I know you had mentioned that that's kind of a piece of it. And I would see that more as the tool, right? Yeah. And then the adaption plan would be within the change strategy. Is that, am I on the right track? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd have a overarching strategy that, you know, the change adoption strategy might be part of an even broader change and transformation strategy. And then that adoption work stream and that adoption piece of it would be focused on, you know, certainly how do you get people trained? How do you get them comfortable before I go live? But then what do you do after the fact to ensure that, um, they're they're using the system to the full capacity. A lot of times, project teams refer to that as hypercare or stabilization. There's a lot of different words that different vendors and uh, consultants might use. But the whole idea is, what do you do after implementation? And, and a lot of times, organizations think of all the stuff to do leading up to the go live or leading up to the transition over to new technology and new processes, but they don't think beyond that. And so adoption really focuses on the entire cycle you know, up, up through and after uh, the implementation of new technology. Right. Interesting. Interesting. And the, and to build on that or to kind of talk about some additional trends that I saw this week that we haven't really talked about on the show. Um, Forbes recently did a three part series on effective digital transformation. And I wanted to talk about the third segment in their series, which they, they talk about the importance of small teams and having that small cross-functional team um, that is really tasked with with executing the digital transformation as opposed to having too many people involved and the risk that could bring. So I wanted to see if you kind of aligned with that um, recommendation of, of really just having a small team to execute it. And then a second part of that question is who should be on that team? Well, to answer the first part of your question, uh, I, I think it's it's easy to point to potential solutions like that as a silver bullet answer to another problem. So, you know, if, if the problem with a lot of transformations is that we have too many cooks in the kitchen or too many people involved in the process, whether it's requirements gathering or making key decisions or whatever the case may be, then it's easy to point to, well, let's just have less people. Um, and that could be the right solution for an organization, but you, you have to look at a number of things. First of all, you have to look at the culture of the organization, because if you're a super um, flat organization that values collaboration and there's a lot of uh, just a lot of cross-functional cooperation as an organization, if that type of organization were then to revert to, let's just get a small skinny down team together and they're going to make all the key decisions, they're going to drive the project in in theory, that might suggest that the project might move along faster because you have less cooks in the kitchen and decision-making is more streamlined. But on the flip side, you're running counter to your culture. And so uh, that's a risk. And then you also run the risk of potentially the strength of your culture of collaboration and um, inclusive, you know, being inclusive and involving different stakeholders. If you're running counter to that, that's actually going to, that could backfire on you to where you have more headwinds and more organizational resistance to where you're actually slowing things down uh, so it's like, okay, congratulations, you sped up the decision-making process, but the bad news is now you've created headwinds in a different way. So um, I think it's, I haven't read the article, but sometimes those types of articles and those sorts of uh, prescriptive solutions can can be uh, erroneously searching for a silver bullet that gets rid of all the risk. And really you're just creating 
new risk by going that route. And it may be still to be the right answer, and it is the right answer for a lot of organizations to go with a smaller team. We have we have clients where we've said you should absolutely strip this down to a smaller team. Uh, maybe not a skeleton team, but maybe you don't need a hundred people. Maybe you narrow that down to twenty or whatever the numbers are. So you know, it, it's not an all or nothing uh, extreme scenario. But I think you really have to look at the pros and cons of each and really align it with your culture and who you're trying to be, and ultimately, you know, what your priorities are. If your priority is to implement as quickly as possible, then sure, skinny it down, but recognize you're going to have other headwinds you have to overcome. But if your um, bigger priority is to get it right and to make sure you've uh, you know, you've got a lot of buy-in and you've got people involved in, in creating the best solution for the organization going forward. That might take you a little longer, but if that's the right answer for you, then maybe a, a larger team is is appropriate. So I, I hesitate to say universally that it's right or wrong. I think you just have to align it against your goals and what your overall strategy is. Gotcha. And then that second piece of the question about the people on that team if you are, say, you monitored your culture, you decided, okay, this is the right kind of amount for me, this is the right combination, cross-functionality is important, who who should be in that room? Who should be voices on that? It depends on the scope of your transformation. So, I mean, you certainly want representation from any affected areas of your transformation. So if it's, a, you know, for example, if it's a CRM implementation, a customer relationship management technology then certainly you'd want to involve your sales team. You'd want to involve your customer service team. Maybe you'd even involve some of your finance team and others that might be secondarily affected by a new CRM system. Um, and absolutely your IT team in that example. And IT is probably going to be involved in most, if not all, uh, teams, you know, transformation teams, or at least they should be. Um, you know, if you have a, a, a PMO, for, uh, as another example, if you have a, an internal project or program management organization, you certainly want to involve them. So there's a lot of different, you have to think through the different stakeholders that are not only going to be directly affected by the technology, but also indirectly. Um, if you're talking about an ERP system, you know, something that cuts across the entire organization, or if you're talking about an HR or HCM, uh, HR-based technology, that's something that typically will affect most, if not all, of your employees. In which case, you'd probably want to have heavy involvement from HR, certainly, but also other stakeholders throughout the organization that are that are going to be impacted. So you really have to be sure to remember that it's so important to do that initial impact assessment up front to understand who your stakeholders are, who's going to be the most affected by this, who are the secondary impacts, or what are those secondary impacts, and how can we put together the right team. But back to your earlier question, the whole time, you're always going to have this sort of uh, balancing act you're playing of you want to involve the right people you want to include the right people but you can't involve everyone in the company and so what's the right answer in between and where where on that continuum do you fall that that becomes the million dollar question that you know most organizations end up with different answers depending on who they are but the key is to make sure you're aligned and you've got a deliberate strategy and that you recognize the risks of whatever strategy you you have there from a resourcing perspective yeah it sounds like you kind of have to look at if you're doing a holistic or a whole overhaul of your ERP system or a best of breed choice might kind of cut into that smaller team type of dynamic that um, this content is referencing. So speaking of million dollar questions, um, the title of this article is all I'm going to tell you, but it said it's yeah, always, you know me, I always like to, you know, just put you on the spot. Um, 
But so the title of this article is called, Why Are Some Companies Bad at Digital Transformation? And it gives a few different reasons for that. But I wondered if you could give us your reasons for why is a company bad at digital transformation? We can kind of compare thought leadership notes. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of reasons, but the most common reasons maybe that they come to mind are, first of all, they don't have experience. You know, as a team collectively, you don't have a, a minimum level of experience going through a project like that. A lot of times companies think that, you know, because they've gone through other sorts of changes or they've gone through big capital projects like, a, you know, building a new plant or uh whatever the case may be, you're opening a new office in another country, they think, well, we could pull that off. So if we could do that, then we can, we could transfer those skills and those, those competencies over to a, a big digital transformation. And it doesn't always equate, it usually doesn't equate, and they're not necessarily the same. So that that's one is that not having the right level of internal competency, maturity, sophistication, whatever you want to call it. And that's a lot of reasons why organizations will hire consultants. But even if you hire consultants, um, and this goes for our client base as well. You know, we we uh, we find that the companies that are most successful are the ones that not only hire us, but the ones that hire us and at the same time have had at least a handful of people or a subset of people on their team that have been through the process before. Maybe they've been through a failure. Maybe they've been burned. They've made some mistakes along the way. They've learned from some successes. But um, regardless, they have some level of experience. And usually those just bring you to it elevates the level of competency and understanding in those cases um another uh maybe other extreme or another reason why organizations fail is because they're overconfident in their abilities so they think that you know if they just hire a person off the street that has been through an erp project before put them in charge of the erp project that's gonna solve the problem um usually it's not it doesn't come down to one person or even just a small handful it's it's got to be a, a bit more broad-based um, and then I think the third thing, which is probably the biggest problem in the industry and, and a big part of why I started Third Stage, is because there's so much bias in the technology industry. And so you have these massive technology companies like Microsoft and SAP and Oracle and others that are promoting and pushing a false narrative of what it takes to, you know, what their technologies can do, what it takes to be successful in an implementation. And they tend to downplay the risk. They tend to downplay the cost and they tend to overstate the benefit and overstate the value. And in some cases, I, I think it's getting uh, even more destructive, if you will, in that a lot of the vendors now are forcing this transition to the cloud. And there's no good reason for it other than they they will make more profit if you switch to the cloud. Um, it, you know, if, if their clients switch to the cloud, I should say. So that's, that's the other, uh, probably the more alarming uh, issue in the industry is that you have software vendors and it's not just the software vendors too, by the way, it's also their system integrators, all the resellers out there, all the industry analysts like Gartner and Forrester are getting paid by the software vendors to, to peddle that same message that, you know, for example, cloud, it's all about cloud. You've got to move to the cloud. If you're not, if you're not in the cloud, then you're not future proof or you're not, you know, insert buzzword here. So that whole ecosystem they've built that's meant to perpetuate the sales of software is creating unrealistic expectations and, and it's misaligning organizations. And I think it's actually extremely unhealthy uh, because most organizations, back to my first point, don't have the competency, the experience to know how to see through the the BS for lack of a better word. And so they end up believing what they hear, which, you know, we're all human and we want to believe that I want to believe you're telling me the truth when I talk to you. And if it sounds like it could be real, then I'm going to believe you. 
And that's that's a lot of what's happening in the market. So I think those are probably some of the main reasons why, you know, if you look at sort of widespread failures, why they're so common, those are some of the dynamics you see within organizations that, that lead to that. Well, those were a lot of really good examples. Um, I know later with both John um, and Brian will help us understand more of that that bias within the industry and, and how to navigate it when it comes to making sure you have ownership over your project and that you're negotiating your contracts, whether it is vendors or system integrators, effectively so that you can have some leverage and some ownership over that. Some of the other things that this specific article touched on, which I know um, was timely for us because we had a blog just recently about the importance of considering your customers in a digital transformation um, and making sure that not only are you internally focused, but you're externally focused as well. Um, and then the other one, you did very well on the quiz, by by the way, A+. Plus, you know. So the other one that they had mentioned <laughs> that um, we kind of touched on briefly was just the ownership of the leadership within the results of that and having that executive presence within that community. So those are the other ones that they touched on, but I'm excited to dive more into that kind of industry bias because it is so important for businesses to understand what is the nature kind of of that culture as unfortunate as it is. Um, the shifting to kind of that failure conversation, which we know can kind of be a, a product of not being able to understand that overall ecosystem of the vendor, the system integrator as well. Um, I recently found an article that talked about the seven reasons for failure. So I just wanted to to touch on a few of those kind of as a precursor to your conversation with John. And then I wanted to take a kind of a global look um, since we are a global company at that footprint. So some of the, the um, aspects of, of failure that was mentioned in the manufacturer article was no top level sponsorship, which we kind of talked about a fear of change. And the one I really wanted to dig into was that it's not just an IT initiative. And I know John kind of touched on that or the most effective leadership to be involved in owning a project. So I wondered if, if you could kind of let us know what should be the balance of having obviously IT involved, as we just said, but also having other stakeholders or other executives kind of own the project um, from that level. So what should that dynamic look like? Yeah, and I think you've, you've sort of brought it full circle with that question back to the, the point I missed in the the three reasons I mentioned, you, you mentioned that another one was the, uh, you know, the lack of executive ownership and involvement. And a big part of why that dynamic happens is because they assume that IT is going to take care of it. This is a, you know, this is just another Windows upgrade or another, you know, rollout of new PCs. It, it's, it's a lot like that. It, and, or that's the perception, I should say. It's obviously not at all like that. And that's not at all what I think, but that's how a lot of executives uh, view it. And so it's easy to sort of delegate it to the IT group and assume that they're going to run with it and make it happen. The problem is, and where a lot of organizations get stuck, is that it, it's not, that technology is just one of several dimensions of a transformation like this. 
And a lot of organizations don't realize that. I'd say most organizations don't realize that it's going to materially impact the way you run your business. It's going to materially impact the culture of the organization. It's going to materially impact the way people do their jobs, not just because they're using a new system, but because their workflows are going to change, their responsibilities, the processes, everything's going to change. And so you can't leave that to IT. And even the best CIOs in the world are not going to be able to make this happen on their own. They're going to need the CFO, the COO, CEO, um, others from the executive team, mid-level management to, to be on board and supportive of it. So uh, it's, a, it's a great point. And I think those are some of the, the things to think about along those lines. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely. And I, I know, again, with John, we'll go into some of those failure key points. And then also Adam later will go into the three red flags or the three top um, I top things to be aware of when it comes to failure within the digital transformation process. And kind of lastly, in our trend segment, I wanted to take more of a global look. And I thought it was a, a great time to also share kind of the growth at third stage with our audience. We do have a new senior manager who um, focuses on our Latin American clients. Um, and a lot of what the trends we've been seeing and what the industry has been seeing is just this overall in really intense digital transformation that's going on with Latin American companies um, through e-commerce. Usually, you know, they did business more in person, but with obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of businesses had to be kind of forced into that transformation. So I thought maybe, Eric, you could share what your experience has been on the third stage side with the Latin America market and maybe tell us a little bit more about why you felt it was so important to build out that team on the third stage. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I felt like we had covered a lot of the rest of the world, you know, with our, with our presence and our footprint, you know, we have clients and we've had clients for a few years now in uh, North America, obviously, which is where our headquarters is also in Europe, especially Western Europe, where our uh, UK branch is based. And then also in Asia Pacific uh, with our office in, in Brisbane. So the two areas that we haven't really touched or, or haven't had sort of a localized presence or focus has been Latin America and also the Middle East. And those are both you know two areas we're, we're addressing. Um, we typically will consult, especially during COVID, we've been able to su- successfully consult two organizations in the Middle East, you know, remotely and whatnot, but that's not a long-term solution for us. So uh, in both cases, with the Middle East and Latin America, you know, we're looking at ways to to sort of uh, move in that direction, both in terms of the clients in, in, that reach out to us from those regions and being able to deliver to them, but also being able to have a local presence there. Um, but I think when you look at Latin America in particular and what's driving the the demand there, I mean, there's just a lot of uh, you know, there's there's a lot of growth in the in the region. I mean, it's exciting, and, it's, and I'd say the same is true for Middle East too, by the way. There's just a lot of growth, uh, a lot of high growth companies that are emerging, uh, certainly a lot of large organizations, but there's, you know, just is becoming more entrepreneurial, I'd say, with, uh, you know, with with organizations that are you know going through their growth cycles. And that usually is what drives digital transformation is growth and change. When organizations go through that change, that's when they end up leaning on us or, you know, leaning on technology to, to help scale the organization. Yeah, that's um that's kind of what I was finding as well. I actually read that over 40% of their in Latin America went to startup tech companies. And 
and ones that a lot of times would rely on technology as a main tool within their growth structure. Um, and I just wanted to let our audience know we have been translating a lot of our assets into Spanish as well. And we'd love your feedback on them if you are a native Spanish speaker. So we have our digital transformation report that is in Spanish. And then we have a variety of our blogs that are in Spanish as well. And if you are interested in speaking to Michelle and team um, in language, please let us know. You know, she's always looking for uh, someone to, to kind of talk to about digital transformation when it comes to Latin America. Um, so if you're an expert in that, please feel free to reach out. But with that, I think that's a great transition into going to talk to John more about these failure points that be, can be used, even if you are a very small business or if you have a global entity or a global footprint. All of these are great best practices. Um, so I'm excited to hear that conversation with him. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be, it will be a good conversation and um, excited to have him on the show as well. And this will be a, a discussion with John Belden from Upper Edge. Uh, he's a, I'd consider him a peer in the industry uh, at a competing consulting firm. Technically, they, they do compete. There's a bit of overlap. We're not direct competitors, but there's a bit of overlap in what we do. So it's, it's uh, always interesting to have a, a peer like that on the show that uh, we can bounce around ideas with. So we're going to have him on the show talking about why transformations fail, and we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 37. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you listen to or watch podcasts. Check us out there and be sure to subscribe to our channel as well um, on YouTube and or on social media so you can find a lot of good information from us on a daily basis on uh, different social media platforms. So be sure to look for Third Stage Consulting uh, there. So I'm excited for our next guest, uh, someone I've known in the industry now for about a decade. Uh, we've been peers, we've crossed paths a number of times, we've never worked directly together for the same organization, but we've been sort of, I'd consider us friendly competitors uh, along the way. And I uh, thought it'd be an interesting sort of change of pace to have someone who's a direct peer that does a lot of what we do, but they also do some different things and we do things different, uh, different service areas than what they provide. Uh, but the guest is John Belden from Upper Edge, and we're gonna have John on the show today to talk about the reasons why transformations fail, and uh, we're gonna do that in the context of ERP failure case studies. So with all that being said, John, welcome to the show. Yeah, happy to be here today, Eric. 
Yeah, glad to have you. And um, you know, you and I have crossed paths in, in this small world of digital transformation and consulting. We've we've both been doing this for a while, and uh, this will be a fun topic. And maybe to start, tell us a little bit about Upper Edge and, and about yourself too. What, what do you do? What what does Upper Edge do? Help us understand you a little bit. Yeah, sure. I appreciate. Um, so let me just give you a quick background. Um, Upper Edge is a um, third party consulting firm, third party advisor, um, and we've been now around for about ten years. Uh, we were formed based upon, a, I'll call it, um, it used to be a co small company called AMR Research. And when AMR Research uh, got purchased, Dave Blake, who is the founder of uh, Upper Edge, uh, took the, uh, I'll call it the advisory service that used to work with people on uh, negotiating their deals with Accenture, negotiating their deals with IBM or SAP. He started up his own third party uh, advisory that actually does the same thing. So our foundation and our roots is a third-party advisory service that focuses on helping clients, I'll call it, um, work in the negotiation with those, um, those types of firms. There's a commercial advisory component of Upper Edge, and then there is what's, what I refer to as what we refer to as a project execution advisory service. And in the project execution advisory service, that's the area that I lead, we really focus on, I'll call it, maximizing the value that our clients get out of their systems integrators. So if you're doing a $20 million deal with um, with Accenture, as an example, um, you know, Accenture will come and help you get all the value out of SAP or all the value out of Oracle. But Accenture doesn't come with a user manual that says, how do you maximize the value out of the third party, right, or out of your systems integrator once you've signed the contract? And so that's the area that our project execution advisory services focus on is not on how best to run your project, but how best to maximize the value that you get out of your systems integrator that's running that project with you and for you. So it's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a variant and we don't come in and do the project, but we will help you maximize the value that you get out of them. Uh, I've been with Upper Edge now about eight years. Uh, in this capacity prior to that, and this is where you and I met, right? Prior to that, uh, I worked for a company called the Timken Company, a uh, manufacturing organization out of uh, Canton, Ohio. Roughly, uh, it was about a $5 billion organization at the time. My last role before I retired there was to lead the Timken Company's transformation in the implementation of SAP. It was about a five-year program at the time, a uh, global program, putting it in. I want to say it was roughly $200 million in, uh, at the time, so pretty substantial uh, transformation effort. And that's really where I got, I'll call it... Um, my foundation in understanding transformation and where I became a student of transformation failures because of a lot of the problems that we have when I got out there and Googled it, it was, well, we're not the first one to have this problem. We're certainly not going to be the last one to have these problems. And that's where I became kind of a student in this space of, of failures and how they fail and looking for insights into can you understand when a project's going to fail? well in advance of that failure kind of predictions and that's that's where it really kind of became the foundation of the the service offering as well yeah that's that's interesting and interesting background of how you know how your career has evolved and also how upper edge formed uh, 10 years ago uh what's interesting when you were describing that you, you talked about the value maximizing the value of system integrator I'll, I'll come back to that point but I, we have some questions we'll get to on that <laughs> You say that because it's very rare, if ever, that you hear someone say, "What's the value you're getting out of your system integrator?" Usually, it's yeah, 
what's the cost? What's the price tag? How can I drive that cost down? It's sort of, it's an interesting take on that that I want to come back to because I, I think that's an important point. Yeah, it is. And it's a lot easier to drive higher levels of value than it is to drive lower levels of cost. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. Let's come hold that thought, though. I want to come back to that because that's a, that's a really important area to dive into. Um, and we sort of broke, you know, the questions that, that I have for you are sort of broken into two halves. And uh, this is not meant to be overly scripted by any means. And sure. certainly, like I said, if the audience has questions, love to get your questions as, as we go here. We sort of broke it up into sort of a segment up front where we talk a little bit about uh, just some case studies or examples of failures, sure. sort of what happened and just what's the story behind those failures. And then the, in the latter part, after we get through that, then I want to talk through, just unpack that a little bit, what causes mm -hmm. failure and what some of the mm -hmm. decisions are and the things that lead up to failure. So to start, I know you study this, you're, you're sort of a student of, of transformation failures, much like I am, and it's fascinating to learn from, and there's so much good info you can get from it, as, as unfortunate as those situations are. Um, but you've got a couple in mind, or you've got a, could you share a couple of case studies with us, or maybe give us a couple stories of uh, well-known or maybe not so well-known yeah, so so let me start with one that's probably not well known, and let me let me make sure that um, I I convey how we do our research first, um, because the the research that we do is all based upon publicly available information in some fashion. Meaning, you know, I'm either looking at lawsuits, I'm looking at published audit reports, I'm looking at, uh, I'll call it. Um, uh, company, uh, you know, the company, let's call it the um, transcripts that come out of calls, uh, their their company reports, et cetera. Um, and the reason I stipulate that up front is because I don't want anybody to think that I'm breaking any confidentiality agreements that we have as a result of working in that particular environment. So everything I'm going to talk to you about is something that has been published and at least well known or at least available. Right. Um, so the first one that I, that I teed up, which is one that is, um, not written about a lot is a company called Israeli chemical limited. And the reason that it's not written about a lot is because the court case is in, uh, Israel and all of the documentation on the court case is in Hebrew. So when I pull those things out, I have to go through the process to actually translate those and figure out what what's going on within that particular case. Um, but the re, but it makes it kind of unique because there's not a lot of people that are going to go through that effort to do the translation of Hebrew. So it's a niche that I can actually talk about Israeli chemical. But Israeli chemical was a um, it's a it, the background on this one is, is it's a chemical company with global operations that had grown through acquisition. Uh, up into, let's call it 2012. So they were really a conglomerate of independently operating chemical companies. And the Transformation Foundation was, if we put these companies together and call it, let's say unify the back office, there should be a lot of synergies as an organization that we should be able to capture that didn't come out of these acquisitions. Hmm. The original project cost was intended to be about $120 million. When they got about a year and a half, maybe two years into the program, the cost had ballooned to almost a half a billion dollars. So they had put in, let's call it a uh, their first implementation. They were getting ready to put into the second implementation. And that's when the ripcord got pulled. 
that said we can no longer support this. And this one's really interesting because the CEO got fired as a result of this implementation. And it's it certainly the foundation for failure can't be we didn't have C-level executive support because this was his program. He was the one that was driving it, right? And that was one of the areas that actually, I'll call it, that was, it, it's interesting from the aspect of this was not a, we didn't have executive support as a failure for that. So I want to start with that one kind of as a, as a foundation. Hmm. Um, when, we, when I look at the history of this one, going all the way back to the beginning, one of the big decisions that this company made that I say put them on the route to failure to begin with is they didn't RFP the, the actual program. They were working with SAP and IBM kind of on a sole source basis. They took the estimate from both of those firms and they used that as a foundation for the business case to go forward to the board, right? In those particular scenarios, one of those things that we found um, is you would think that the, the systems integrator in a sole source environment would be motivated to give you um, a higher price rather than a lower price because there's no competition. But in fact, it often works in reverse. The mm -hmm. systems integrator will give you a lower price point because they know what the hurdle rate is in order to be able to get the project approved right? Once they get that contract signed, right, then we'll worry about what the real price is going to be because we're already locked in. We already got 70 people working on the project. It's not like you're likely you're going to change and we'll worry about that problem later, right? So the choice not to go out to RFP actually created a scenario where Israeli chemical saw a lower price point than what was probably going to be. And if they had gone out to RFP and multiple people would have been bidding on it, they would have understood the range of possibility associated with a program like this because somebody would have probably came in and give them gave them kind of the real number. Right. Does that make sense? Right. So, yeah. so it's, it's sort of the opposite of what you, you would think, but I guess that makes sense. You, you, you want to be below the threshold and you also don't want to create any alarms or, or give them a reason to want to go to RFP by having a higher price tag that may right. not answer the customer wants to hear. Yeah. And I, it, you know, it's, it's, you know, I'm going to deviate here for a second. It's one of the things, I, you know, I, I refer to it as the SAP, but it's also the Oracle Death Star, right? The, the initial estimate that you get on any project there isn't a single person that's motivated to give you a higher number, right? SAP is going to give you a low number. Accenture, IBM, your systems integrator is going to give you a low number. Your business sponsor wants a low number because it's going to make their business case better, right? All your project team is going to have an optimism bias to say, hey, we can get this done for a lower number right? And your CEO wants it low. Your chief financial officer wants it low. I even blame part of this on, I'm going to call it your parents, right? And say, well, how do your parents get involved? Well, your parents probably told you when you were young that you can do anything that you put your mind to, right? So now you've got these low numbers and you've got this in the back of your mind, right? That said, I should be able to do this. Even your high school coach probably told you, yeah, we can take that big guy. So everything at the very beginning of a project is driving you to a lower number than probably what's realistic, right? And that scenario really kind of amplifies itself when you do a sole source bid. Hmm. 
there's a weird uh, kind of human behavior thing at play there that's that's hard to hard to overcome for a lot. Yeah, of exactly. Right. So that's kind of the first mistake that is Israeli chemical made. Okay. Now the second mistake that they made was, and and I say the the concept of a single global instance with single global processes that are going to address all of their multiple business units. Okay. Um, while that while that decision is not a failed decision, what happened at this company was the CEO made that decision, right? Without bringing his operating committee, let's say the, the layer below him, in for the ride that they hadn't holistically bought into the common set of processes across our organization. And he was driving it as kind of a singular agenda of the CEO, right? So the mm -hmm. operating team hadn't bought into this whole thing and they, they ultimately were not working with him, right? But they were working their own thing and it was, oh, by the way, this is a CEO's project. He's got that going and it's on the side. Right. So that global operating model actually worked against them because the rest of the organization wasn't bought into. Right. Working toward that lo local model. And so they met a lot of resistance, I'll call it, in the field in that space. Right. So that's kind of bad decision number two. The third bad decision that they made was who they put in charge of the project to begin with. Right now, I know everybody's going to say, well, he's probably going to say they put an IT guy in charge. Right. But they, but they didn't. They put the they put the heir apparent to the CFO in charge. Right. So they put a finance guy in charge of the program. But the finance guy had a focus on, I'll call it financial efficiency. Right. And not business operation efficiency. And his immediate bias on the program was financial, meaning we need to hit, obviously, be able to roll up numbers for the organization. That's what we need in a common ERP system. But his mindset was also on budget and schedule for the program, because that's what he knew and understood as metrics, right, of a good program. So now the project is being purely measured on budget and schedule as it's being raised up to the organization. And... You know, when I look at a project, that's the third thing that I'm worried about is budget and schedule. First thing I'm worried about is operational continuity. Second thing I'm worried about is benefit. Third thing I'm worried about is, you know, budget and schedule. When you put that budget and schedule at the top, it immediately starts to drive bad behavior in terms of the other two, right? In terms of what it creates, right? So the positioning of that initial guy, uh, CFO, that's kind of bad decision number three. Because you've got a, I'll call it the wrong behavior on the program. I'll call it bad decision number four, right? As they were going through this project, they completely restructured the organization and they changed the setup of the organization and, right, the legal entity structure of the organization. So anybody that knows anything about SAP or Oracle or those areas, the company hierarchy that you set up at the very beginning right? If you change that hierarchy in the middle of the project, right? Well, you know, I, you know, I heard somebody say that SAP and Oracle are very flexible, but it's kind of like flexible, like wet cement, right? right. You know, once it, once it sets up, right? It's really, really hard to change. So now they've got this restructuring that they've got to do. And in the middle of the program, they've got to kind of pivot and redesign the organization inside of the program. So that's kind of 
bad decision number four, right? Mm -hmm. Then you get into, okay, now we're behind schedule, right? Now we've got issues, uh, you know, with the, um, I'll call it budget and schedule or budget. We're behind schedule, budget and schedule. How do you catch up? Well, simple. We just take out a testing cycle, right? So they took out a complete testing cycle in the implementation. Now they take out this testing cycle when they go live, right? With their first implementation, all they have is operational problems, right? Operational problems, operational problems, operational problems. And at that point in time, that's when the board got involved and said, this project is going to be a disaster. Pull the ripcord. CEO gets fired, right? And they go back to, we're just going to operate in this independent fashion. Now, I spent a lot of time kind of talking about the, the bad decisions here. Um, and, and what you didn't hear me do is blame any of this on the systems integrator, right? Because the systems integrator, by and large, was just along for the ride. If you want to put fault on the systems integrator, it was the initial bid that they had provided, right? Not their ability to execute to the plan that had laid out, right? And so to a certain extent, I think they kind of laid in wait which a lot of them do, right? Because they know where the client's going to fail and then say, oh, by the way, it's not our fault. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. I mean, you, you hit a, a bunch of really good points there. Um, all right, good stuff, John. Thanks for that. And we're going to come back with more questions I have for you. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with John Belden, and we're talking about why ERP implementations fail. Let's jump right back into the conversation. I mean, that operational uh, disruption after go live, that that value or that undermining of value, whatever you want to call it, negative business benefits that come out right. of that is so massive. And, and when, you, you, when you think about on this side of the equation, you've got your cost, and then this is the sort of the value we expect to get okay, congratulations, you drove the cost down on the implementation, but now you can't ship product for, you know, three months or whatever. What exactly. That, what's that cost to you? And, and that's exactly, right. And that's one of those components that, you know, that we talk about, maybe we'll talk about in the future is this value erosion component, right? Because value erosion on an SI, you know, there's a cost component. Are you getting the value out of the SI? But if you put in something that's a bad implementation, right, the cost associated with the recovery of that bad implementation, um, you know, that can burn you as well. I mean, you know about the uh, the national grid example, right? I mean, right. the cost of the recovery of national grid was more than the cost of the project itself, right? Yeah. And so, so that I mean, that's just complete value erosion, um, you know, all all together on that one. 
Why do you, do you, I don't know if you have a good answer for this. I don't, but I'm curious if you have a thought on this, but why is it that organizations don't really seem to think about the, the value after the fact? They're so focused on time, cost, schedule, all the stuff you just described, but why is that? I mean, do, uh, you- I, I think, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I look at, I look at the C level. Let's, let's just look at the C level attention, right. Associated with the program. The C level attention for me goes through Carol, you just went on video, just so you know. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, the C-level attention goes through three phases, right? Phase number one is all focused on value, right? Which is what's the business case for, that we're going to get out of this? Where's the value going to come from this, et cetera, et cetera. Once that business case and once that project gets approved, right, then it focuses and it comes into budget and schedule. Right. And the reason from my perspective that it goes to budget and schedule is because the project managers, when they start getting asked, how are you going to measure this project? It's the only thing that they can elevate immediately to the senior teams. Right. It's the only numbers that are available. We got to go in and talk to them about something. What are we going to talk to them about? Let's talk about budget and schedule because that's what we know. Now you've raised that up to the level of the key KPIs to the senior team that you can't avoid talking about it as the first thing because you personally as the project manager have created this right as the first thing. And that's what that senior team understands. And now that's what they've been conditioned to expect. Right. So you're going through that that second phase of budget and schedule. Now, when you get close to the go live, right? All of a sudden, operational continuity becomes the most important thing because those guys at the, I'll call it at the top now, are scared to death, right? That you're going to put this system in and what's it going to do to me? And so now this operational continuity comes raining down on the project team and the project team now has to fix or at least try to fix all of those things and all of those sins that they've committed, right? When they were doing budget and schedule and the SI then will react and say, hey, you know, we made all these decisions. You're asking us to do a bunch of stuff that we had already planned on not doing. Guess what that means? Change order. <laughs> OK. And they just sat there and laid in wait. Right. So it kind of goes through phases based upon, you know, what's happening in our program. And part of what I encourage my clients to do. Right. Is when you launch a project, you talk about all three of those things immediately from the get-go. You raise all of those up. You raise operational continuity. You raise value. You raise budget. And you report on that every single steering committee in some fashion to make sure that that steering committee, you know, is now been conditioned to think about all three of those things right from the get-go. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. A great way to sort of reprioritize the way we're often conditioned to think, especially you know, the whole project management field, the whole discipline of project management is really focused on, you know, project controls and costs and staying on budget on schedule. So we're all kind of conditioned to exactly think that that's our metric of success. But what you're saying is it's that's a metric of success, but it's not the most important. It's not the only one. Right. But it but it be it's the one that tends to drive. Right. The, the other the other factors, right? I mean, another thing I recommend to my clients is they keep three risk matrices, right? They keep an operational continuity risk matrix, they keep a value risk matrix, and they keep an op, a project operating matrix. Most people work in this project operating matrix, right? But if you're going to make, if you're going to make adjustments, right, in your project operating matrix that says we're going to make this decision, 
it should drive you to look at the other two matrices and say, what's the impact on those other two matrices as a result of making this project decision? If we're going to lower, right, if we're going to say we're, we're not going to have this high price $300 an hour guy, we're going to go and lower the cost to a $200 an hour guy. Okay, that's going to solve your project budget issue, but what's it going to do on your value issue? Right. right. Is that guy critical to that? Is that guy critical? Has he done implementations before? Right. Is it going to put a negative context in that? So I always encourage them to keep three matrices on their risk log project value operational continuity. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it keeps the attention on those important things. Exactly. Too. Right. It allows you to continue to have that as an agenda item with your steering committee. Now, what about this concept of the uh the system integrator being along for the ride. That was an interesting choice of words. You know, a lot of us expect and a lot of clients expect that the SI is the expert. They're going to come in, they're going to do everything. And, yeah. you know, on the flip side, on the, on the other extreme, those SIs that take complete control without being transparent and that sort of thing, that creates a whole nother set of problems that we might get to today. But what what is this going along for the ride phenomenon? Should yeah. we have reasonable expectation? How do you how do you manage that? Yeah, so that's, a, I mean, it's, a, it's another great question. But if you think about, and for those that are familiar with very large programs, right, um, the accountability for delivery, right, shifts from the systems integrator to the client in the back half of the program. And, and I'm going to refer to accountability for delivery as these things. Who's responsible for the cleanliness of the data, right? Ultimately, it's the client. Who's responsible for making sure that the, that the, the people get trained. That's the client. Who's responsible for establishing the tactics associated with putting in the deployment plan, right? That's normally the client. Who's responsible for making sure that all the equipment gets to the site that needs to get to the site so that I can do my, you know, kind of the edge. That's the client. All of those responsibilities, right, occur or at least become really, really visible at the end of the project, right? So the systems integrator is largely responsible for the build, right? The configuration, the building of the RICEFs, right? Putting together, let's call it the test plan, but the client's ultimately responsible for the testing. Again, backside, right? So if a systems integrator waits long enough, right? And hides, let's call it their inability to deliver on some of those things in the build. If they wait long enough, right? They can almost count on the client failing to deliver on that back half, right? And when the client fails to deliver on the back half, now the systems integrator can say, oh, it wasn't our fault that we went live. It was your fault, Mr. Client, that we didn't go live. So therefore, we're going to extend the project by three months. And what happens with me as the systems integrator, I now get the opportunity to fix all of the problems that I had, right, on your dime because you agreed that it was your issue that we went late right so you know right. you just sit there and kind of lie if they wait long enough right it will become the client's fault yeah that's a that's a interesting but concerning point you <laughs> right there with that whole thing and you know we have uh Another guest that we have on the show in the past is, is a, an attorney named Marcus Harris, and he's yeah, uh, I know him. I, I know who he is. Yeah, he's an attorney. He focuses on uh, for the audience. He's an attorney that focuses on uh, negotiation and, and the legal aspect of uh, 
ERP projects. And he, he and I have talked about failure as well. But what's interesting about what you just described and relating it back to contracts is that everything you just described that is the client's responsibility, oftentimes you, you have these massive documents of statements of work and contracts, yep. MSAs and all that stuff. Yep. But what you just described is like a simple little bullet. It's just a bullet of an assumption that that's the client responsibility. It's almost like, oh yeah, here's all the stuff we're going to do. And by the way, you're going to do data. You're going to do the data. Exactly. Mining. It's like, well, yeah. it's just one, it's one, it's just one thing we have to do. Right. But it's, people it's, don't the, it's, the, it's the R versus a C in a racy. Right. So who's, you know, it, it, it can come down to that. Right. So that's part of, you know, again, that's part of what we do as an organization when we're looking at those. Yeah. We'll help people with their contracts, but we look at those contracts and we try to draw their attention to, right. All of those things that they were responsible for. And then making sure that, you know, when we're looking at their plans, they understand that accountability because the systems integrator is going to drive you to those areas of responsibility that the client needs to assist them with in order for them to achieve their contract, right? right. They're not going to drive you to, are you thinking about your data over there? Are you thinking about your data over there? They're not going to point that out in a heavy fashion until it gets to the end of the contract, right? And, you know, then I'm going to say now they might be saying they're doing it the right thing for you, but there's a mutual benefit to them, which is, oh, by the way, now you recognize your own poor performance, right? right. And it's not our fault. And maybe I'm cynical about this whole thing right now, but I've but I've seen so many of them, right? And that's kind of where the practice comes in of, you know, maximizing the value of the systems integrator, understanding how they behave, right? And when you understand how you behave, then you can put things in place to be able to say, okay, let's make sure that we're not letting them get out of this box too early. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great point. And I'm, I'm, I share that cynicism with you. I, I'm very cynical when it comes to this stuff too. Although I do have to ask you what, you know, that dynamic you described of the system integrator doing all that work up front, and that's where they make a lot of their revenue. And then sort of at the back half is where the client responsibilities pick up and usually they trip up and then you can blame the client. Is that by design or is that just sort of a coincidence that that's just how these projects are structured? Or? No, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not going to, well, the 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 things at the end are naturally the client's responsibilities anyway, right? You can't you can't shy away from that, right? Right. I think it's more along the lines of the systems integrators are obviously managing to their own contract, right? I mean that so that's clear, right? They're not going to put themselves in a position to 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 not make money. Hmm. They're also not necessarily in a position where it's always to their advantage right? To notify the client, they'll notify them. Yeah. They'll notify the client, but they're not going to make a huge big deal out of it because there's always that. That's not our risk to manage. Yeah. Right. That's not our risk to manage. Now, having said that <laughs> the contract structure does drive the systems integrators behavior, because if you're sitting on a fixed price contract, right? Versus, let's say, a time of material staff augmentation contract. Well, now the systems integrator is going to be up there pointing as soon as they, you know, right away that says, hey, you're, you have problems over here. You have problems over here. You have problems over here because I can bring in resources to fill those things. And that's the way that I generate additional profitability. Right. Right. So the contract structure does drive behavior, right, on the, on the systems integrator with the way that they think about the client. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned the word fixed bid contract and, um, you know, especially in the public, you know, government entities and uh, big, large corporations, 
they oftentimes will have these very robust RFP processes and they want fixed bid and they sort of use their leverage to demand fixed bid from their SIs. And it feels like, you know, when I do that, I feel like I'm creating predictability and I'm, I'm max or I'm, uh, I'm capping the total cost of this project, but it creates so much bad behavior. I mean, some of the biggest failures I've seen are fixed bid contracts. I don't know what about you, but those oh, are- it, 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 it's, yeah, I mean, it does, it does. I don't want to say that I don't like fixed bid contracts because there's a time and a place for them, right? Especially if you can, you know, the smaller the length of time that you can put your fixed bid contract around, the better off you are, right? The longer you stretch it out, the worse it is because there's more bad things that can happen to you, right? And more uncertainty on your side to let them get out of jail free on that fixed bid contract. But, you know, value erosion, the, the first step in value erosion comes when you go from that proposal to the contract itself, right? Because all the, you, you cannot hold your systems integrator accountable to their, their proposal. You can only hold them accountable to their contract, right? And that first step of taking that that proposal and sticking it into the contract itself is the first step in value erosion because all of a sudden you'll see deliverables floating away you'll see new assumptions coming into play you'll see you know you'll see a different i'm going to say you'll see a, a different perhaps a different staff right than what was actually sold to you right so that that that's a that's an area of kind of first step of value erosion is that transfer that transfer of proposal to contract mm -hmm. uh and that's a tough hurdle to get over because once you've accepted that now the systems integrator is going to play the game they, they can play the i'm going to call it they can play the long game here right because the vendor now, or the client now wants to get started on this project we picked our systems integrator we got our budget approved right and and oh by the way now we have to sign the contract well, the systems integrator knows the pressure that's on the client in order to be able to start that project, right? The client will start to make compromises to get that deal signed, right? In order to be able to get that program launched because the systems integrator, right, will kind of sit there and say, I can't start until I have paper. Then you end up with this, well, let's just sign a letter of intent right? And we'll get started on the program. I'll bring in my 25, my 25 guys to get started. You just lost. You have no leverage now, right? To, to be able to drive those things in. So it is a tricky game between RFP acceptance and actual contract signature. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting point. Cause that dynamic, just the stuff that gets slipped in there, the, that, that one bullet item, the assumption that you're going to handle data migration or that you're going to do all the end user training. It's just one little line in a, in a contract, but man, they have yeah. huge. Well, and the, and the end, from my perspective, Eric, the single biggest gotcha line that most people don't even think about is client will make decisions in a timely basis. Oh, right. Yeah. See, it's, it's so innocuous, right? It's so innocuous, but what clients don't understand is the volume of decisions that need to be made on an ERP implementation. No, no, most of them have never faced the volume of decisions that are going to need to be made, right? It's not what they do. They make decisions that are most of the time that are well-formed decisions that they make every day. I got to choose this. I got to choose this. I know what the path is. Then you're sitting here with a set of decisions, which are kind of organizational looking five years out, six years out. How do we want to operate? They're not prepared to make that volume of decisions at that level, 
right? And all of a sudden, all of those decisions now need to be escalated because that's not my pay grade to make that decision, right? And all of a sudden, right, they get raised up. Everything slows down to a crawl. Systems integrator says, eh, yeah, you're not making the decisions at the pace that we agreed. Change order, <laughs> right? And it's just a simple line in there. We'll make decisions in a timely basis. Or the, you know, the flip side or the, the uh, alternative to what you just described that just to prove the point that there's no easy way out of that being backed in that corner is you could say, okay, well, um, we'll just go ahead and go with the path of least resistance, which is to build the software the way we're doing things today, which you totally exactly right. Then why are you implementing new technology? If you exactly right. So, so one of the things that we've done as a tactic in those, you know, to make those quick decisions. Okay. Um, as a counter to that, that systems integrator, you will make efficient decisions. As a counter to that, what we've required in, in contracts and with the systems integrators is to say, the systems integrators will provide X number of days or whatever the number is, you know, uh, four weeks notice on major decisions that need to be made, right? So, so they've got to create the visibility of that, right? And on steering committees, we'll provide a forecast to steering committees of the decisions that need to be made on a timely basis, kind of rolling forward. Because from my perspective, the ultimate, I'll call it elixir for making decisions on time is lead time, mm -hmm. right? The more time that I have to make a decision as an executive, the higher quality decision it's going to be because I'm going to have time to at least socialize that, talk to my people about it. So the more lead time that you can create to make decisions, the better decision that you're going to make. And then you have to force the systems integrator in certain cases contractually to say, you're going to give me the lead time because they already know the inventory of decisions that you're going to have to make, you know, but what's their motivation to show you that early? Zero. Right. Zero. Yeah. Well, and sometimes they don't know, you know, sometimes they're not even on top yeah. of the plan ahead, which is enough. Yeah. yeah. And now, and now I would, and now I would tell you, now we tell Eric, don't make excuses for them. Right. right. They, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they know 90% of those decisions. Right. Well, they should, if they don't know, they should know. So I'm not, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not making excuses. They should know. And if they, if right. they then that's a whole nother problem. Yeah, but it's but it's really kind of putting them in a position that says you got to create the visibility of that. Once that visibility is there, the decisions that have to be made, now the client can look at that inventory and they can make a decision. Do I actually have the right people on the steering committee? Right. right? Because because you can take that key decision inventory and use it to pressure test your steering committee and say, do I have the people on the steering committee that I trust as an organization to make these decisions? Because if I don't change the steering committee, right? Because that's what's going to cause that to be able to go fast. So key decision inventory actually becomes a really good tool to pressure test your steering committee with. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, good stuff, John. Thanks for that. And we're going to come back with more questions I have for you. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more transformation.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with John Belden. We're talking about why ERP implementations fail. Let's jump right back into the conversation. Question here is, uh, is it a bad idea and a reason to fail if a company gets more than a single ERP? So if I go with a single ERP, mm -hmm. am I less likely to fail than if I do a best of breed and get a separate CRM, HCM? And, you know, more actually, actually, we're so that's, I mean, it's a great question. We're actually seeing more, let's call it mixed implementations now, more, more um, combination of digital core, right? Coming from, the primary ERP vendors, right? Whether it be Oracle or, or SAP or, or whoever, along with kind of the best of breed attached to the outside. We're mm -hmm. seeing more of that. Um, and I think some one of the things that's driving that is I think a lot of companies are taking an approach, especially in the SAP space, on where they're sitting on an ECC platform, right? They know they're going to have to go to S4, but part of their migration strategy to go to S4 is to, I'm going to call it de-risk what they've currently got in that ECC platform by taking out certain capabilities that are buried in the ECC platform, putting them into a best of breed, right, that I can connect to the ECC platform. And then when I get ready to upgrade, the amount that I'm actually having to upgrade is less than it was before, right? So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a way to kind of de-risk the migration while I might be just pick by, while I might be picking up the value of where the big value add actually is in going to that next platform, so right. we're seeing so we're seeing companies kind of decouple the core of their ERP and what was in there before, and taking that best of breed, and it doesn't necessarily have to come from that same software provider. How about this? Let me uh, not in defense of the vendors, but let me use their talking point here to see your your sure. response. You shouldn't do that because you you want a single system, fully integrated. You've got a single throat to choke. You don't want to have to deal with all the integration and data issues. You just want us. You just want that single platform from us. Mm -hmm. Why why would you do that? Uh, and from a technology point of view, I would have no no issues with that argument. Right? right from my ability to make choices and and again now I'm going to talk from a pure from a pure negotiator point of view. Right, uh, I've lost all my leverage. I have zero leverage whatsoever going forward in the future, right? So it's like, I don't even think I want to put myself in that position just for that for that particular point, right? So I get nervous from a leverage position. Um, right. I can, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the quote of the, the, the ultimate failure of that, right? Um, have you ever heard uh, the, the story about a company called, there's Oregon, Oregon State, right? Cover Oregon was their program, and it was to put in the replacement for, or, or the, it was a substitute for the 
the Obamacare provided by the central government. Each state had a choice, right? Do you want to use the national platform or do you want to use your own platform? Okay. The state of Oregon decided that it was going to use, that it was going to do its own. They were putting in Obamacare. They put in also their, their healthcare systems. They decided to replace them all. They went wall to wall, everything, Oracle, completely, right? And the logic was, well, it's all coming from Oracle. It all works together, right? But you can't find a single client that uses all of those Oracle products together, right? In that, in that kind of a configuration. So while the logic makes sense, right? That yeah. was a huge failure. They spent $300 million, didn't take one application. <laughs> didn't take wow. one application. There's a lot of problems with that one. I could go on and on and on with a, with that one. That was a, that, That's a classic, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, even the, from a technical perspective, you look at, uh, you know, SAP is the one that drives me the most crazy when they say this, but they say, we've got the fully integrated solution. You're on the S4 HANA platform, blah, blah, blah. But really, if you look at what they've got, I mean, they've got, yes, they've got S4 HANA, but then they've got um, Concur, they've got SuccessFactor, right. they've they've gone out and acquired all these other point solutions that aren't integrated. It's no exactly. different. Just went out and bought a random HCM or whatever uh, system. You know, now certainly over time, sure, maybe they start to integrate a little bit better and start to merge the things together. But um, vendors like SAP will say that, but in, in their practical reality of implementing, even from a technical perspective, a lot of times it's not even true that you've got a fully integrated solution to your. No, and what and what and what really SAP really offers in that space is it's not fully integrated, but we have people that have done this integration, you know, a thousand times. So we have a core set of expertise in terms of actually making that connection work. Right. That that right. becomes their that becomes their value prop. Not that not that it's fully integrated, but we have people that we know how it can make it work. Right. Right. Because you're going to pay for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, similar kind of question here, but maybe a little bit different, but, um, but it's a little bit different from that single ERP versus better best of breed uh, question and whether or not that contributes to failure. But what about um, niche? solutions, you know, more industry vertically focused solutions versus the big, broad ERP systems. Do you, do you see any correlation yeah. there between? Yeah, yeah, actually, actually from a, from a research point of view. Okay. When you're, when you're dealing with that, a niche area, let's just, let's just say I'm going to, let's say I'm dealing with plant maintenance. Just take that as an example. Cause that's often, that's often an area that comes out of the ERP system and you're going to put in Maximo, you're going to put in something like that for plant maintenance. We actually don't see as many failures in that space, right? And and the reason I'll say isn't because it's a niche solution. It's because it's a niche process within the company itself that you tend to have singular decision makers, people who can make that decision in this mm -hmm. space, and you're not having to get procurement, supply chain, finance, and all of those other people to agree on what the answer is, right? So you're actually able to make decisions faster, and they're not nearly as complicated, right, as if I'm trying to do HR, finance, payroll, right, supply chain, and my commercial systems all at the same time. Now you're dealing with now you're dealing with what I'm going to refer to as wicked, messy problems, right? Because right. you're you're dealing with really technical, complex problems, but you're also dealing with organizational issues, right? And when you put those two things together, right, 
the problem solving time becomes much more extended and the authority of who gets to make the decision is much less well understood. Right. So it's not necessarily the niche project that makes it successful. It's the scope of the implementation across the organization, from my perspective, that causes the issue. Interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I'd agree with that, too. I, I don't know that I've thought of it in that exact way. But, uh, you know, certainly if you do an HCM implementation or CRM, that is going to just go faster by definition, partly because it's a smaller scope, but also because of what you're saying, which is the you know less decision making complexity that goes into that. Exactly. Right. The, you know, who gets to make the decision is much clearer. Right. Right. Yeah. It's much it's much clearer in those areas. Uh, and the accountability for value is it's, is much clearer. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know why I thought of it. That that question from the audience member about that uh, singles or the focus solution versus the broader solution triggered this thought. Um, what about agile? You know, agile. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> I have a similar opinion on this, but I'm curious. What oh my God. Here is so, so, so if they're, if they're okay, now I'm going to be really, really opinionated here, right? <laughs> if there, if there is one thing that absolutely drives me out of my mind, right? Is the concept of we're going to do an agile ERP implementation, right? Because, you know, listen, you know, agile works great. If you're dealing with, you know, a, a product that you are going to be developing that you're going to implement that doesn't necessarily exist today, an add-on, right? But when you are replacing, right, what you already have, you know, there, there's no, there's no, oh, by the way, we're just, we're just going to skip finance today, right? We're going to, it didn't make the backlog. We can't put it in. You have to connect all of the dots, right? You have to connect, you know, it's like a doctor going in and say, we're going to do agile surgery. No, you know, right. if he runs out of time, if he runs out of time, you know, we forgot to suture him up in there, but we ran out of time and money. It was agile. No, you got to, you got to tie everything off. Right. So ERP agile, maybe there's agile ways to do the delivery and set up what you need to build and, and, you know, and execute on that. But you can't, you can't say I'm going to just time box myself into and deliver what I can with agile for an ERP. So I'm yeah. sorry, I was really opinionated on that, but it's like, no. <laughs> well, I, I have similar opinions on that. It's almost like, uh, you know, if, where agile does work. And I think where people maybe have blurred the lines too much is like with a really innovation focused company like Apple, you know, they've got a product that they market research isn't even uncovering a need for it, but they want to get something out to the market to test it out and see if people want that if there's any demand for it or learn how to you know they're, they're, the extend, they're extending the capabilities of what they already have right yeah not replacing something that already exists yeah right and when you're in that like i said when you're in that replacement mode you've got to tie everything off you can't you can't yeah. do it fast <laughs> well it's almost you know whenever i hear someone say on one hand we're gonna uh create a common operating model we're gonna standardize and globalize our company and we're also going to do an agile implementation right there. That's a huge disconnect. And those two things are an immediate. Yeah, conflict. exactly. I 100% agreement on that, right? When, yeah. when, the other thing that agile does, and it's great for the systems integrators, it's really, really hard environment to get an accountability model set up in an agile space with yeah. the systems integrator, right? Because yeah. what are you measuring them on, right? It's almost like I got to figure out how I'm going to quantify the backlog. And you're going to deliver the backlog, 
but now you're always in the in the in the space of well grooming the backlog things are coming in things are coming out how are you going to hold them accountable to something that's in that space it's a really tough it's a really tough contracting environment uh, for the client great contracting environment for the systems integrator yeah it's a it's a built-in excuse for why something doesn't work it was yeah. i'm the whole point of agile is you, i'm going to put something out there and if it doesn't work i'm going to fix it <laughs> so yeah. right there yeah you know and and we we and we met schedule and we met you know we we did that budget and schedule we met but the what you got delivered may not meet your expectations of did i actually get the value out of it now all of the agile you know bigots out there are going to come back and say oh blah 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 you know yeah. but you know erp implementation with agile yeah, it I, I agile techniques, not agile methodology, holistically. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. And selectively, I think you use that word too, just selectively right. and where appropriate, but not a broad based yeah. RP transformation. All right, good stuff, John. Thanks for that. And we're gonna come back with more questions I have for you. We're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more transformation grammar control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with John Belden. We're talking about why ERP implementations fail. Let's jump right back into the conversation. This this session, I'll be honest, is flying by. I didn't realize we we're already almost an hour into the discussion, but uh, there's a lot we could talk about. Probably well, you can have me back again sometime, Eric. I may have to because I'm not going to get through even all my questions and <laughs> other questions here. But um, I guess let me, uh, maybe a good place to sort of bring this full circle. I know we've talked about a little bit. We scratched the surface of the whole um, operational disruption and the, the operational yeah. stability piece of it. Um, we talked about cost and schedule, but let's talk about this concept of, uh, the value erosion a little bit more, maybe yeah. just help unpack that a little bit more. I think that kind of brings us full circle in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, the first piece of, you know, when we think about value erosion, we think about value erosion from two aspects, right? One is, is exactly like you said, right? It's, it's, well, if you're going to pay a hundred dollars for a solution, right? You measure value by the cost versus what did I ultimately get out of it, right? What was what was the expected business benefits? And value erosion can occur in one of two ways, right? It can occur by um, it cost me more to deliver than what I expected it to occur, right? Or it can occur by I spent what I expected and I didn't get nearly the value out of it that I anticipated, right? So right. value erosion can occur in one of those one of those two ways. If I look at programs in general 
and you think about that concept of value erosion, we typically see anywhere between 30 and 50% of value erosion on these big programs. Either A, they're not delivering all the value, or B, they're going over budget and they're, and they're spending way more than what they thought they were going to spend, right? And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, you, you yourself would know if I said, hey, what's the average overrun of spending on a program, right? It's going to be in that 25% range, right? Well, there's 25% value erosion right there. And then right. if you ask yourself, did they actually get all of the, you know, did they fully implement everything that they thought they were going to implement? I would guarantee you they probably overspent and under implemented, but they're only talking about the 25% budget overrun. They're not talking about the value that they didn't get, right? So it's not a hard leap to go into that 30 to 50% of value erosion, right? When right. you jump into a, when you jump into this thing, right? So, you know, when we think about value erosion, we think about it in three sections, bid to launch, right? So from the time that you receive that RFP to the time that you actually sign a contract, right? What value actually erodes in that space? Sometimes it's the contract. Sometimes it's the assumptions that you're making on your own ability to deliver the project, right? That you that I can tell you right out of the gate, um, you know, if the systems integrators say are saying, well, you need to provide 20% of the resources and we're going to provide 80%. Well, I know right out of the bat that that's an invalid assumption. It's never going to work that way. Right. right. So you can tell right from the get go that there's going to be value erosion right, right out of the gate just because of the way that this, it's set up. Right. So part of it is trying to protect the client right out of the gate that says you need to understand what the cost is going to be real cost before you sign up for this thing, because there's already a 20% cost increase coming that you don't know about, right? Right. Um, then, then I would call value erosion, I'm going to call it from launch to go live. And it's kind of all the crap that goes on during the course of the execution, right? That the, the systems integrator to a certain extent is taking advantage of, you're not making decisions fast, right? Or, you know, oh God, the, the great one is, we're going to come in and do a quality audit, right? We're going to do a quality audit and we are going to identify all the problems that the client is having, right? As a part of this, as a part of this quality audit. And all of a sudden you've taken the attention away from actually delivering on the program itself, right? And setting the foundation to give you a change order in the future because you haven't corrected those things, right? right. So that's, a, that's another space of that. Hmm. And then I'm going to say another area is just this whole contingency utilization, what you just talked about on the fixed bid, right? Whenever you do a fixed bid, there's typically a certain percentage, right, of the bid itself, which is the 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 assumption that the systems integrator is going to bear some of the risk, right? Try to get them to show you once you've signed that fixed bid, right, where they're actually assuming that risk and where they're spending the additional money on your behalf in order to be able to implement the program. You know, it doesn't work like it doesn't work like insurance where you pay your risk premium and then they give you a detailed readout of everything that they paid for on your behalf. Doesn't work like that. Right. <laughs> you know, so you know, the fact that you can't hold your systems integrators accountable for utilizing that contingency that you paid them to utilize. Right. How do you actually, you know, that's value erosion because it's almost like you get just gave them away 10%. Right. It's almost right. like it's not almost it's not like it's fixed cost. They treat it like it's fixed profit. Right. Right. It's a fixed profit contract. And then, you know, kind of the last section is what happens in from deploy to hyper care. 
right? Lots of companies define hypercare as, well, well hypercare often is, is defined as a period of time, not a set of conditions that you need to yeah. exit, right? That says, yes, we got everything right, right? So, you know, how many times have we seen a go live go in where the systems integrator knew that there was a lot of problems before the go live, right? Went into hypercare, said, Hypercare is six weeks or four weeks. We're going to fix all the major problems that we can fix within that period. And then we're going to turn that over to your AMS team to fix. Right. right? So you really didn't get the full value of what you expected out of the systems integrator because they found a way to move it into hypercare and then out of their purview. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have the whole dynamic too of where when you get past hypercare, that time-based hypercare that you're talking about, um, by then you're you're either a so exhausted from the implementation you're just glad to move on to your day job or b you're just moving on to the next phase of the project if well it, and that's exactly right because then they take oh, Scott, it gets me all fired up right but then they also take advantage of that right because while you're in the business of trying to fix all of the problems that exist they'll drop that next sow in front of you right and they'll say okay we've got to get this signed in order to be able to move on to the next phase. You're so fatigued, you don't even want to look at those things anymore. Yeah. Right. And guess who has the leverage to move forward? Yeah. Well, and, you, and then you think about value optimization. So you, you talk about value erosion and then there's sort of the, the flip side, which is how do you optimize, not just don't erode it, don't sure. lose it, but how do you gain as much as you can? And so many companies fail to spend that little bit of extra time and money at the end, not just doing hypercare, but yeah but optimizing like, okay, we're not getting the full value out of the system or let's dust off that business case we did, you know, two years ago when we started this project and see what kind of benefits we're actually realizing versus what we expected and figure out how to optimize that. If you, you know, and that's the level of effort and cost to go into that activity right there, I would argue is the highest ROI of anything you can do in a project because you get so much value out of that, but yet that's, you're either too tired to do it or you're already moved on to the next. The yeah. Next and what I also, I like to say too, you know, when there's a lot of problems in the hypercare, Right. You know, the project's calling it hypercare, but the business is referring it to hyperbolic. Right. Everything's freaking going crazy. Right. So we're in the, we're in the hyperbolic period of the program. And, the, the you know, the, the, the systems integrators just sitting there watching the clock run. Right. Because they know they've got an exit strategy. Right. I'm going to have to steal that line from you. That's great. That's brilliant. It's hyperbolic versus hypercare. <laughs> Well, good. Well, you know, I, I feel like this is sort of an abrupt place to end, but it's as good as any, I suppose. I feel like we definitely need to have you back on here because there's a lot we didn't cover. And we were going to go through a couple of case studies and we, we only got through one because we had so yeah, we many, only talked about one. <laughs> we had so much good stuff to talk about on that one. So we'll have you back. Maybe we'll talk about another one and dive into some other topics here. But uh, thanks a lot for being here. This is a really good discussion and uh, you have a very good way, a very clear and energetic way of conveying this stuff. So I appreciate having you on the show here. Today. I was happy to do it today. All right. Thanks a lot, John. That was a great conversation. A lot of good nuggets of info from that and a lot to unpack. In fact, uh, Kyler and I are going to come back after a quick break. We're going to unpack some of that discussion when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. 
If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Tatum. Uh, you're listening to episode number 37. You can find us every Wednesday with new episodes on YouTube and all the regular podcast platforms like Google, Spotify, Amazon, iHeartRadio, Pandora, wherever you listen to or watch podcasts, we are there. So be sure to check out Transformation Ground Control there and be sure to subscribe to us as well. So Kyler, we just had this great conversation with John from Upper Edge talking about failures and why they fail, uh, some of the root causes that don't always seem so obvious to organizations. Uh, what were some of your thoughts or what are some of the things that jumped off the, the page as you were listening to that discussion? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm really glad that you invited your frenemy on the show today. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Always, always. Um, so I wanted to kind of talk about the overall kind of statement that it might not be the hard finance budget numbers, but it might be more the value that the system or the transformation brings to the overall project. Um, and I thought we might we might look at that kind of how we look at business cases and explaining that to our executives or what that might mean for our projects. So if we if we look at actual value, are we talking about ROI? Are we talking about efficiencies, operational value? What what does that word actually mean in this context? I'd say yes. It includes all, all those things you just you just mentioned, and it's gonna you know it varies for every organization. I mean, some companies are gonna value different things depending on where they are in their growth cycle and their strategic planning cycle and all that stuff. But in general, yeah, you're, you're looking for efficiency gains, you're looking for uh, reduced inventory, you're looking for a better customer experience, a better employee experience. And you're, you know, usually organizations are using this as an opportunity or they should be using this transformation as an opportunity to, to scale for growth. But where companies get stuck and where they get sideways in these sorts of transformations is when they forget about why they're actually doing this or they fall victim to you know, back to a point I made in the first segment about uh, some of the vendor bias, you know, you get vendors who are saying you need to switch to the cloud. You're on our old system. We're not going to support it anymore. So you need to move to the cloud. And so that becomes the impetus for why they're changing. And that's a terrible reason to, to change is because your vendor told you you have to. So even if your vendor does tell you you have to and you end up doing it because your vendor is making you, which is very unfortunate. And that's a whole nother conversation for another time. I have very strong opinions about that, but we'll, we'll save that for another day. But even if that's the case, you do need to you need to make it you need to turn it into a bigger picture uh, strategy. And so yes, our vendor is making a switch, but that's not good enough. You need more of a justification of okay, what value are we going to get out of this? They're telling us cloud is great and cloud's amazing. Let's figure out if it really is and what kind of value we expect to get out of it, so that we can make sure we invest properly and don't overinvest relative to the benefits, and that we hold ourselves accountable to get the benefits we expect. So those are just a, a few of the things that come to mind there. Yeah. So are you are you guys suggesting that the budget is less important, the project budget, than the actual value long term that the system or the transformation will bring to your organization? Or what's the relationship there? 
That's a tough question because this is where I fully acknowledge that, you know, it's, it's somewhat, sometimes it can be easier to be an outside consultant who is detached from the day-to-day realities that organizations are going through. Um, so I fully get that CFOs and CIOs and other executives are on the hot seat to make sure they implement in a way that doesn't make the same mistakes that so many other companies make, which is they go way over budget. They spend way too much time and money on the transformation. So budget is a very real concern. It's a very real limited resource. I don't want to be dismissive or flippant about the fact that organizations do have budgets, but where companies get into trouble is when they become too focused on that and they don't focus enough on the other side of the equation, which is what what value are we getting out of it? And it, I would argue that there's a case to be made that it might actually make sense to spend less money on your implementation. In fact, most organizations are spending too much money um, without accountable or without corresponding business benefits coming out of it. So I think it's really important to understand, you know, the cost side as well as the benefit side so you can optimize that and figure out, you know, how can we find that right balance to where we're not over investing um, to get diminishing returns, but we're also not underinvesting where we're not getting the value that we could if we would have invested a little bit more. So it's a, it is a, definitely an equation that needs to be thought about. The problem is organizations tend to focus too heavily on that on that budget side. In fact, the other part of it too, the other side note, I, I don't think I mentioned this or I don't think this point came up when John and I were talking, but when you have a when you have a budget on paper and you say, you know, these are all my line items for my total cost of ownership. It feels real because you've you've assigned real numbers to it. You've gone out and done research. You've gotten inputs from the vendors. Maybe you've talked to consultants or whatever. You've talked to peers. You, you have some rationale for how you, what the cost is going to be. The problem is, is most of the time those budgets miss the mark, but we have a false sense of confidence in those budgets. And so not only are we over-focused on budgets in general, but to add insult to injury, we also have this false sense of security that we have the right numbers to begin with. And usually organizations don't because they've been fed the wrong inputs or, you know, there's bias in the process, like I mentioned before. So even if we just look at budget, that is flawed in and of itself. But then going one step further, you need to make sure you have a realistic budget. Yes, you focus on optimizing the budget, but you also have to look at that, that other side to your point, which is the, the business value and the ROI, which varies back to your original question that I was trying to answer. It varies depending on the type of organization, your goals and priorities. Yeah, definitely. I just, I think of, you know, my experience when you guys were kind of chatting about that. If I went to our very scary CFO at third stage and said, you know, I want to spend a hundred million dollars on a new automated marketing system, she probably would say, uh, no, I don't think that we're going to do that. But understanding that it's a lot of our listeners' jobs um, to go in to explain to their executives, like, this is the budget I want to spend and, and over-communicate that. So I'm wondering if you can tell us, like, how, how do you bring in that value into the business case process? And caveat, um, our CFO is an extraordinary lady, Kelly Kimberling. She's very sweet and nice. So just a joke there. <laughs> And she's coincidentally sitting right across from me. And if she wouldn't kill me, I would flip the camera to show her sitting right across the desk right. from here as we're filming. But right, um, right. In fact, very impressive right lady. But still, you know, it would be my job as that project leader to explain the business value and, and what that looks like. And, and I can assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that can be hard to quantify or explain in a business case. Yeah, it, it can be. Uh, the whole thing is hard to explain, honestly. I mean, it's it's even the cost side or even the more predictable parts of the project, like the 
the software licenses or, or the software subscriptions, depending on if you're on-prem or in the cloud, that that's the most predictable part. But even that's hard to predict because you have escalators that kick in that's hidden in the contract. Um, you know, a lot of times you don't have the right assumptions as far as how many licenses you're buying or how many users can access the system. So companies end up actually struggling with even the most basic, easiest part of the business case, which is the software piece of it. And then you get into the stuff like implementation costs and data migration, change management, any sort of outside consultants, all that stuff. And it gets even more complex and less likely to be accurate. And then you get to benefits and that's even more fuzzy and harder to predict because those are in the future. And, you know, so really the whole time, I mean, you have to do a couple things. One is to be very structured and disciplined in how you do it. You want to be realistic. You don't want to be biased. I mean, it's easy to go out and find all this vendor collateral on how the average company is going to save, you know, 30% of their SG&A costs because they implement a new solution. Well, chances are, A, that's probably overstated. And B, it's probably not applicable to you because that's an average. So you've got to figure out what is that metric for you. And, you know, really dive into your operations and your specific situation and really unpack, you know, where could we be saving time and money if we had the technology to enable it. And like I said, every organization should come up with a totally different business case. And that 30% SG&A savings should that should vary. I mean, that number, that metric should be different for every every company that goes through that exercise. So those are some of the things to think about. It's, it's easier said than done, but uh, it is a very complex thing. But I think if you remove the bias, you add some structure and objectivity to the process, that alone can have a huge impact on how accurate your business case is. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, and something else John said that was so interesting, you know, was that overall management of expectations or his kind of metaphor of that parents or that coach on the sideline that told you, you know, you can achieve whatever you want. And then really when you go to that vendor and have that conversation and the vendor's like, oh yeah, for sure. We can, you know, we can do that. And not having someone like yourself or John in the room saying like, whoa, 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 you know, let's get a little bit grounded. So for some of our listeners, that might be, you know, in that situation where they're trying to navigate, you know, this is what my goals are. One, are they achievable? And two, where are the sources of information that I can go that are going to be kind of independent and factual as opposed to a salesperson or something like that? Yeah. Well, you know, that's part of why clients hire us at third stage is because we are independent and we do this all the time and we help clients not only define those upfront business cases, but also we help them measure and achieve benefits after the fact. So we have that sort of full cycle that we can loop back to or, you know, learn from, um, you know, that's one option is you hire an independent third party like third stage that knows what they're doing and has done this before. Uh, you know, we use one data source that we use for benchmarks and, and just getting a handle on what companies are actually uh, realizing and achieving with technology is uh, APQC is an organization that has a lot of good metrics out there, a lot of good knowledge capital that is available to its members. And if you go to APQC.org, um, you can learn more about them. And I, I think they even publish some stuff for free and then other stuff you have to be a, a member of. But what I like about APQC, and we're actually members of and we license their content, and we, we bake their content into our consulting. But um, one of the things I like about them is they're not they're not vendor commissioned studies. Like when you go to Gardner, when you look at a Gardner Magic Quadrant, someone paid for that. And that person that paid for it probably did pretty well in that quadrant. They're probably in the upper right corner. And their whole point of commissioning that quadrant was to show that they're in the upper right 
corner and they can now point to that and say, look, Gartner says we're in the upper right quadrant. Well, what they don't tell you is that they paid for that study for Gartner to tell you that they're in the upper right quadrant. So APQC does not do that. And that's what I like about them is they just they base things on facts. It's not um, it's they're not trying to push one product over another. They don't really do vendor comparisons and stuff like that. But they do a lot of operational metrics and benchmarks to help you kind of look at how you compare to other other organizations. So if you can find those kind of metrics, I think that's key. And, and they should be unbiased, agnostic, uh, objective metrics for sure. That's great information. Um, yeah, and just a plug for third stage, we do have a lot of, of independent information on our website as well. I think a lot of people think that independent for third stage is a buzzword, but we really get no money, get no influence from any outside third party. And that's why, you know, that trust is there. Um, and then speaking of, you know, kind of how you can mitigate that risk. I know John mentioned that it's it's really difficult and gave them the national grid example to fix a bad implementation. So if you're not kind of ready to go into the implementation process, he referenced national grid that costs them more to actually fix their implementation than their original project budget. So obviously something like that. And I wanted to unpack with you as the best I can, because it's pretty technical, is the the kind of RFP acceptance and then the contract execution or the contract process and understanding kind of how how do clients leverage or how can they best be set up for success when they go into vendor negotiations? Because I assume that's something that they probably haven't done unless they're a software company um, in their kind of day-to-day experience. Well, I mean, first of all, on the, the cost side of it, you know, when you're looking at dollars and cents, that's an important part. You want to understand the cost piece of it. Um, you want to make sure you have the right assumptions in those those cost uh, estimates and whatnot. Um, but you also want to recognize that, that, again, you're getting essentially what the vendor thinks you should do. So you really have to look at it with a critical eye and say, do we need... Do we need a thousand licensees? Do we need a thousand licensees now? Could we start with a hundred and then stair step up to a thousand over the course of the next you know couple of years until we roll the technology out? Things like that. I mean, in you know, you have to recognize that you know you're not there to be friends with the vendor necessarily. You're there to negotiate and to, and to protect your your organization. Um, and what the vendor thinks or what peers may think isn't necessarily what's relevant for you. So you have to do what's right for your business. So that's one thing is, is, uh, you know, getting that, getting your, your head straight, you know, as far as what the process is. Cause we see a lot of companies that just sort of, they trust the person they tr- and we all want to trust, you know, we're human and we want to trust each other. They, they trust the sales rep. They trust the contract they see. They don't know any better. They don't understand all the technical lingo of different modules and whether or not they actually need those modules, but the sales rep said we do based on our requirements. So we're going to go ahead and buy all this stuff. So shelfware is a real problem that undermines business value uh, as far as just buying way too much technology that you're never going to use. So I always ref- tell clients, you know, err on the side of buying too little. You can always go back and buy more, but you can't undo the, you know, you can't give back or sell back the licenses that you don't use. Um, so err on the side of, of lower, you know, lower amounts. And that kind of leads to another point along those lines, which is don't, you know, don't be pressured by great deals and limited time offers, which is super tacky in my opinion, but sales reps and vendors do it all the time. They say, you know, it's end of quarter. If you sign by the end of quarter, I can get you this great deal. And I've, I've yet to see a vendor take some, take something off the table because a deadline expired. If you go back to that same sales rep 
quarter ends, you're in a new quarter, that rep is not going to tell you no because you didn't do it the previous quarter. They're already on to the next quarter trying to hit their numbers for the next quarter. They'd be happy to, uh, you know, fill that deal for you. So anyway, that's, those are just some things to think about as you go, as you go through the process and more than anything, just be, be objective and clear headed about what you're negotiating. Yeah. And is that a consideration um, for the size of the software company that you're working with? Like, say I, I am a company and I am looking at Oracle. Are they, because they're, you know, the gold standard of ERP, are they going to negotiate with me? Or is that consideration for maybe going with something like smaller on the smaller side, like Acumatica? Obviously, if that meets my needs, but they might be more, um, more conducive to negotiating. Yeah, it's a great, great question and point. Um, I'd say yes, that that is the case. When you have a when you have a big SAP or Oracle, if it, it, or a big vendor like SAP or Oracle, and you're a smaller organization, you just don't have the same leverage. If you're a Fortune 500 company, sure, you're you're going to have you know probably equal leverage, and you can probably negotiate your way the, the way you want to. But when you're in the middle market, where a lot of our clients or most of our clients are. Um, that's, that's a tough spot to be in some ways because you're, you know, you're big enough that you might need an SAP or an Oracle or Microsoft Dynamics 365, but you're sort of a, you're a small fish in a, in a big pond, you know, as far as their customers and their willingness to negotiate with you. So that is where, you know, you have to assess that reality with, you know, some of the smaller or mid-tier solutions where they would bend over backwards to get you as a customer and they will negotiate with you. They might be easier to work with. They might give you better resources, um, all that sort of stuff. So you really do have to, that's an intangible that's hard to quantify, but that is something that you have to look into. And it's a very yeah. real dynamic for sure. And is that the same with system integrators as well? Is there different sizes when it comes to um, working with them? Or are they are they um, sometimes more congenial when it comes to negotiations? Yet, uh, system integrators, I'd say, you know, I'll caveat my response by saying I do have a bias uh, when, it, when it comes to system integrators. I used to work for one of the big ones, and I just know too much about how they operate. And honestly, even if you're a big organization, I think there are oftentimes, more often than not, are better options out there than your big Accenture's, Deloitte's, um, KPMG, whatever. Um, there's better options out there, in my opinion. You've got a lot of really good, solid, mid-tier system integrators that are big enough to provide the scale you need, the resources you need, the footprint you need, the geographic reach that you need, but they're not so big that they have to sell you a $100 million solution in order to make it worth their time. Um, and you can get, I think, in my opinion, again, you can get a lot more value out of those mid-tier um, system integrators, um, par partly for that reason, but also because a lot of times, you know, the, the really talented senior people don't last long at those big consulting firms. Those big consulting firms will hire a lot of kids out of college. Some of the, the people that the people that do last, they'll they become partner. You know, they they move up and they become partner. And there's some very there are some smart people there. But I know a lot more smart, talented people that are very good at what they do that are working at the second tier firms, largely because of the politics of the big companies, largely because they get burned out, you know, of that that sort of environment. So they end up going to a smaller firm. So you get a lot of really good talent at those, uh, you know, some of those mid-tier organizations. So I, I hesitate to have any sort of generalizations about uh, things. And I, I fully acknowledge this is somewhat generalized. But, uh, you know, I, th I think more organizations should be looking at mid-tier organizations, even the big Fortune 500, S&P 500 types of organizations. They, they could, I think they would behoove themselves to look, at least consider, you know, a smaller, lesser known system integrator.
Yeah, well, that's great information. I know you have a ton of content on that. So if any of our listeners want some follow-up, um, you can head over to Eric's YouTube channel, which has a bunch of information on you know working with a system integrator. I think also from an, an untrained eye or ear, such as myself, some other piece of content I would highly recommend to our audience is our digital stratosphere with um, Marcus Harris from Taft Law, um, which was from our digital stratosphere earlier this year. So he goes into a lot more on the legal side of contract negotiations. And so if you're kind of interested in that, go check that out. Um, I did want to just touch on one more point that I found really interesting, which is kind of the combination of utilizing different systems. So I know John gave that example of Obamacare and the state of Oregon, and they kind of overdosed on Oracle, if you will, and and put it within their entire, <laughs> you like that, organization. Um, and I, I wondered if you could take us through if, how do you, how do you um, go about kind of matching technologies with one of each other? Do you need to make sure they kind of integrate? And how do you make sure that data stays clean when it's passing through different systems? Yeah, I think first it helps to clarify what different systems means because a lot of times people think that, well, you know, if I'm buying all my technology from Oracle, it's the same system. Or if I'm buying from SAP, it's the same system. But more often than organizations realize, you still have to do some pretty complex integration. And quite frankly, a lot of times it's the same level of effort to integrate two modules or two systems owned by the same vendor than it is to implement two non, you know, two different vendor systems. So uh, especially in today's day and age where a lot of the big ERP vendors are going out and buying other systems to sort of bolt onto their core offering, like SAP is going out and bought Concur and Ariba, SuccessFactors. Those are, those are largely third-party. Those are third-party systems. They just happen to be owned by SAP now. So the, the benefit of having, in that case, in that example, the benefit of having an SAP suite of products across the board is, is overstated. I mean, you might you'd be just as good going with another uh, vendor in many cases. So I think that's the first thing is to recognize um, what, what you mean by different systems. But beyond that, I think, um, you know, even if you look at single ERP systems and even if you could find an ERP system that does most of what you want it to do across your entire enterprise, you still have to worry about integrating modules and stuff like that, you know, different modules within the system. So I think a lot of it is understanding the technical uh, backbone of the, of the platform and making sure that you have the internal competencies or you at least build the internal competencies to be able to manage that because you're going to have to own it going forward as an organization. You can have your consultants do the initial build and integration, but you really need to take that ownership longer term unless you want to keep paying expensive consultants for the long term, which is generally not something I would advise, even though I'm a consultant. So um, yeah, those are just a couple of things to keep in mind. Interesting. Well, this was such a great conversation with John. I hope we have him back. Um, there was just so much. It, even in listening to it, it went over an hour, and I, you know, was was really entertained and and learned a lot the entire time. So thanks for taking the time to kind of chat with him, um, even if he is your friend of me. Yes, he's a <laughs> he's a good friend of me to have for sure. He's yeah, a, he's a good he guy, and I respect have a lot of respect for him and. Uh, He's very animated in the way he animated mm -hmm. and unfiltered, which I, I always appreciate. That, yeah, that passionate for sees. sure, which is great in yeah. kind of the tech industry because sometimes it can be a little dry. Um, but he was he was really fun to kind of get to know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. Well, yep, I've enjoyed having him too. We'll definitely have him back. Um, and 
we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and, and hear from a few of our consultants on the third stage team. Um, we're going to hear from uh, a few people talking about failure, negotiating with vendors, as well as hard truths about digital transformation. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, episode number 37. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, as well as all the usual podcast platforms. And be sure to check us out and follow us on social media, whether it's LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you are, be sure to look for us there, subscribe to us, get our content daily. And uh, we're constantly putting out uh, digital transformation best practices and thought leadership that's meant to help you uh, through your transformation journey. So if you like the content in this podcast, uh, we put out a lot of snippets of stuff uh, throughout the week as well. Um, so. Shifting gears a little bit in this last segment of the podcast here today, we have a few uh, guests that we want to have uh, make appearances here on the show, and all these guests are from Third Stage. So I'll, I'll sort of let you guide the conversation from here, Kyler. Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned at the beginning, this is part of our three series um, in celebration of our third anniversary. We made some shorter form videos, and we're going to play you some clips of them um, that kind of weave in nicely with our theme today. So our first video is from Adam Cheatham. He's our Director of Transformation and Strategy here at Third Stage, and he's going to go through the three red flags um, to look out for for imp implementation failure. Um, after we turn it over to Adam, I have some questions for you, Eric, when we get back. So with that, um, Adam, take it away. Hi, my name is Adam Cheatham, Director of Strategy and Transformation at Third Stage Consulting Group. So at Third Stage, we're celebrating our third anniversary, and by way of celebration, I wanted to share some of our, uh, our three biggest indicators and red flags that you are going to have an implementation failure. The first and foremost is uh, uh, failure to plan is planning for failure, right? You've heard it all, all before. Um, if you don't have a detailed, integrated project plan, that's a real red flag. You know, we sometimes see system integrators feel like it's normal not to have um, an even high level of project plan six, eight weeks into the project. That's a bad thing. Don't, don't let that happen to you. The second is that your people don't know what to expect. Uh, they don't know what to expect of leadership, of, of their governance structure. They don't know what to expect uh, of the of their time, how much they're going to be involved in this transformation, because in, at certain times, uh, particularly for your core team, it's going to be pretty extensive, and they don't know what to expect when it comes to the actual changes that are going to be deployed and when. And then the third um, is that you're letting your system integrator take control of your project. Um, if you uh, vacate the driver's seat, you can bet it will be minutes 
um, if not mere moments um, before your system integrator is sitting in the driver's seat, you know, influencing you to make decisions that are uh, that they may believe are the best decisions for your organization, but they don't work for you. They work for the software company, and it's the, in their best interest to get the software working, and it's in their best interest to uh, really work with their own confirmation bias to say the system can do that and not have to think of a more creative and more business process-oriented way of adjusting um, your organization and adjusting to the transformation itself. So. If you guys are seeing those types of things happen with your implementation or your digital transformation, feel free to reach out to me directly. I'd love to be a sounding board for you and listen to what challenges you are having so that maybe we can lend an ear and, and um, even lend a hand if you guys want it. So uh, thanks a bunch. Okay. Thank you, Adam, for all of that great insight. Um, so he had mentioned three things when we were talking about implementation failure. He said failure to plan, which we've kind of talked about throughout the episode. Um, and then the people side of it, making sure that people kind of know what is to be expected of them or obviously our organizational change management. And the last one he said, which I was kind of surprised that this was in his top three, was not letting your system integrator take over your project. So I wanted to kind of just dig into that with you since we were kind of talking about system integrators with John earlier on the episode. So what does what does he mean by that? What what would a system integrator do to take over your project, or or what would kind of be in it for them to kind of run it their way? Ah, uh, that's a that's a good question. It's, it's a tough tough question because there's so much there. Uh, we spent a whole episode on on this topic, uh, and I have strong opinions on it. So, um, like I mentioned before, I used to work at one of the big system integrators, so I, I understand how they think and operate and. I guess to, if I were to summarize some of the, the things to understand or some of the dynamics to understand, is first of all, the system integrators, especially the large ones, have a lot to gain or lose you know, to, to make sure that they have as many resources as possible staffed on your project. And so it's somewhat of a perverse, misaligned economic incentive from the start. Their goal is to get as many billable hours as possible because that increases their revenue. Yours is maybe not necessarily to minimize the number of billable hours, but to find the right balance for you. And so right there, you already, you already have a conflict out of the gates. So your, your goals aren't, aren't aligned in that way. Um, secondly, there's the, the other second dynamic that's at play is that back to the opening segment when we talked about <clears throat> the competencies or the lack of competencies that most organizations have when, when it comes to transformations, that leads to a void. It's a knowledge gap that gets filled by the system integrator. So it creates this unhealthy dependency on the system integrator because I don't know any better. So I'm going to defer to these guys and gals to, to figure it out for me. So they come in and they bring in the army people and they figure it out for you. You're just, the problem is you're going to pay a lot of money for it. And more often than not, when they leave, you're still no better off in terms of your, your internal knowledge and competencies because they did most of the work because of that first uh, perverse economic incentive. I mentioned it's they're they're incentivized to do more of the work for you uh, than they probably should. Um, and then the third thing I'd say is, uh, this is sort of an intangible that it's a dark, I'd say a dark secret or dark side of, uh, especially the larger system integrators. I don't want to generalize too much. I don't know if this is as true for mid-tier or the smaller system integrators. I don't think it's as true for them. But when you're dealing with one of the really big um, system integrators, oftentimes they get so caught up in themselves that they forget about you as, as an organization. And, and uh, you know, I have stories or memories or examples from growing up in that space where we would have these meetings at the client sites in, you know, off in a conference room by ourselves, just with our team, not with the client, but just with our team 
trying to decide, you know, how is it we're going to message this bad news to the client and how are we going to protect ourselves when we have to deliver this bad news because we're over budget or there's something wrong with the implementation. And so they, it turns into this sort of spin machine of like, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear and I'm not going to get egg on my face. And it, it becomes very political, if that makes sense. So, uh, and it's not very honest. So uh, in the interest of self-preservation, these, these system integrators oftentimes will, um, will mislead, you know, for lack of a better word, they'll mislead the clients in terms of what's really happening and, and the client oftentimes is in the dark. So those are some of the dynamics at play uh, first and foremost. So you add up those dynamics and oftentimes what happens, oftentimes what happens is that the uh, organizations just completely outsource the implementation, you know, because they're busy, they don't have the knowledge, they've got a business to run, they're not the experts, so system integrator is going to come in and take over. So that that's sort of the backbone. That's probably more than you wanted to know of, of what some of those no, uh, dynamics are. I find are this play fascinating. There. It's very, it, you should do like, I don't know, like the real system integrators of the U.S. or like some Bravo <laughs> show because it's all very like dramatic. <laughs> you know, it's all very, oh, um, yeah. it seems like it, there can be a lot of, of, of just drama around, you know, that relationship. Um, and it might not you give be me a great idea. Actually, it's sorry to interrupt you, but you give me a really good idea. So you could do like an undercover, like hidden camera, oh, you get yeah. someone who's on the inside to like get a recording or a video of those sorts of conversations. Um, and then you, you publish it and you show this is how it, that would be very disruptive to the industry and people would not like that. Or a lot of people would not like that, but that might yeah. be kind well, of interesting. You know, you kind of, you got to know. And I think that's to Adam's point here is just, taking ownership over your own project, right, internally and making sure that though you might not know everything, that's okay, you know, and in, in, in investing in people that will tell you the truth because they have no reason not to, um, you know, they're not selling you anything, they're not, in, you know, in cahoots with any other system. So I think that's just such an important piece of kind of the thesis of our conversation today. Um, but with that, I, I want to switch gears into um, going into our next clip, which is from Brian Potts. Um, it's about seven minutes, so a little longer than our three-minute series, but such important information when it comes to how to negotiate with your software vendor. So with that, I will turn it over to Brian. Hello, World Wide Web of Digital Transformation and ERP Excellence. My name is Brian Potts, uh, Chief Operating Officer with Third Stage Consulting Group. Today we're going to be talking about negotiating with your software vendor. We've done a lot of publishing blogs and, and videos on general tactics for negotiations, but today we're going to take a step back and talk about what you should do to prepare for negotiating. Before you actually go to your vendor, request quotes, start that process, what do you need to do to make sure that you actually do end up with the best uh, proposal and quote from your software vendor? So the first thing we want to talk about is having an understanding, clarifying what it is that you actually need. And where I'm going with this is, as soon as you receive a quote from a software vendor, you've set a benchmark. And it, you've actually, in, in fact, started the negotiations. Either that, that number comes in way too high, they've given you more than you need, or it's an excessive rate, or they come in too low, uh, in which case they've haven't provided you everything that you need. Either way, you're starting from a point of disadvantage because any, any move you make from that point puts you more in line with what you want rather than negotiating around what you actually need. So the first step is to understand the functionality that you need in your software. 
uh, specifically understanding the integrations uh, that are going to be needed, what other solutions are going to tie into that either brought in through the software vendor. Uh, a lot of companies uh, such as NetSuite these days are bringing in partner firms to help support missing functionality or add uh, additional capability to their software package. Make sure that's included in, in an understanding of what you need. A lot of times you might have an, an internal uh, human resources package or CRM solution that you want to integrate with your new ERP. We want to make sure that that is considered when you start the negotiation process and when you ask for that initial quote from your vendor. The second point here is once you've defined what it is that you need is to go do your research. You, you don't walk onto a car lot anymore without having a clue of what a car is going to cost. Otherwise, you could end up paying who knows what. So you want to have some framework. The difficult part in the ERP world is that it's not really public knowledge. Uh, vendors don't publish their what clients are paying for, for software. Um, however, through the internet you can find a lot of information. There are a few vendors, uh, Oracle in particular, that does promote and actually share their software costs. Be a little bit aware of that because they're, they're broken out in, in ways that doesn't really facilitate a full package, but it can give you a starting point. You can also do research on uh, review sites, uh, organizations that, that uh, offer review of software. People will sometimes share what they're paying on, a, on, a, on an average rate. Uh, they'll give indications of where their, uh, their costs will fall. The, the best approach for this is to hire a firm such as Third Stage Consulting to help you uh, navigate this. Uh, a company that has done negotiations, that knows the software market, is a great great way to get uh, some guidance and make sure that you're starting off in, in the right direction and really get uh, the best value for your money. The other thing to consider is you don't necessarily always have to look at just the cost of, of this particular package that you're bringing in. There's a lot of tier two solutions that uh, don't have as much available information on previous negotiations or case studies. But you can look a little bit outside of that, find comparable solutions, see what they're running. Uh, it, give, it, it, it starts to narrow down your expectation of what this cost could be and where you want to be as a starting point for your negotiations. The other uh, pieces of research would be uh, to make sure that you, you've done some diligence with your software vendor. Um, ideally, that's a demonstration that they've gone through. And what this provides you is, tying back to the first point, is it gives you an idea of where there might be some gaps. It gives you a, a point of, a starting point of negotiations, like you know that there's something that they're not going to cover, or you know that there's something that they're maybe a little bit weaker on. Having that knowledge before you walk into negotiations is extremely valuable. Once you've determined what it is that you need, you've done a little bit of research, the next step before you just talk to software vendors or, or start to get those quotes coming in is to understand your internal needs and process. A lot of times we find companies just start running into their negotiations just saying, what can we get? What price can you give us? Which you know, it leaves it open for the, the vendors to come back with anything they want to. But if you've got an understanding of your budget cycle, if you've got an understanding of your internal goal is short-term versus long-term savings, upfront costs, deferments, have a sit down with your CFO and understand what your trajectory is for cash flow, what your real targets are, because understand that when you ask for something from a software vendor, you also have to give something up. Uh, it, it's a balance beam. You want to, what you want to do is make sure that that 
high end of the balance beam is what you actually want and that you're, you're letting go what you don't, what isn't as important for your company. Get that perspective in, in place internally and then you're ready to go out and start talking with uh, software vendors. To this point we're assuming that you've done some form of evaluation whether through a third-party firm or internally. Maybe you asked your best friend what software they're using. Whatever the case may be, you've done some level of evaluation to get to a point of asking for a quote from a software vendor. We do recommend if you haven't utilized help at this point, this is a great time to bring in an independent firm, uh, an advisory firm to help with your negotiations. The reason is, is because anybody can ask for a lower price and they will be given a lower price, but what happens in negotiations is the software vendor will make it up on the other end. So understanding the, the intricacies of the software contract, what, go, what happens with accelerators, what happens with future terms, and tying those all to your needs um, is a critical piece. And understand also when you're when you're talking about um, setting up and understanding of your needs and talking about setting budgets, that you're looking a little bit into the future. Uh, we, we find a lot of companies saying, just if we were to get the software up and running right now, what's the cost? Let's get that locked in. But understand, ideally, you're going to be in this software for 10, 20 years. So you want to think a little bit ahead of schedule and make sure that you're negotiating terms that are going to be valuable down the road, not just for the short term. With that structure in mind, hopefully you're ready to, to start moving into negotiating with your software vendor. Hopefully this has been helpful for you, like, you've liked what you've seen. Uh, if you have questions, please feel free to reach out, my information is provided, and also subscribe to our channel. Uh, we've got a lot more uh, available information uh, helping companies through this digital transformation in these changing times, and really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Brian. All good information. Again, a very complex subject as we kind of talked about what that looks like to negotiate with all of our partners involved in this. So he had said uh, a few good pieces of recommendations. Um, you need to know your needs, right? What do you need as a business? That's an internal conversation, though outside consultants or partners can help you with that. You really need to know that before your contract phase. Um, do your research. And then the last one he touched on, which I had some questions for you on, was understand the internal costs. So looking at, you know, the resources it's going to take, um, moving around, things like that, um, looking at reappropriating IT teams or managing data, those types of things. So I wondered if you might kind of give us a top line recommendation of, of how you go through that process as an organization before going to the vendor and negotiating with them. Yeah, so there's internal costs. I mean, the, the main buckets of, of cost are going to be things like your, you know, the labor that you have to hire uh, to backfill for the people that are going to be hopefully so ingrained in your project that they don't have time to do their day jobs. So that's, that's a, you know, an important internal cost. Um, you also have the cost of, and this is the one that people most often overlook is you have the cost of supporting that system longer term and software vendors will say, well, it's, you know, you can get rid of it staff, you can get rid of servers and infrastructure because we're in the cloud or whatever. But the reality is a lot of times those systems are so complex that you end up building up a staff just to support that new, new technology. Um, so you have to quantify that and factor that into your overall cost. So when your vendor tells you that their direct costs are this, you have to look at the full picture of all the other costs on top of that for your internal costs, as well as your implementation costs. And, and also the cost of things that 
are part of the implementation, but they're not necessarily the vendor's responsibility. So it might be your responsibility. It might be you're going to hire someone else to do the data migration or the, you know, the architecture or the change management, program management, whatever it may be. So all those buckets, you have to really look at the whole purview, the whole picture of what those potential costs are. And is that through um, kind of just outlining what your needs are and then looking at the gaps in there and understanding like where you will need to say maybe hire or train or those types of things? Those should all go in the budgeting plan for the transformation, I would assume, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then what about... um, when we're talking about software vendors specifically going through things like licensing or understanding the initial costs versus maybe the second year costs, because it sounds like there can be some expected, unexpected, um, maybe not transparent conversations around, you might pay this the first year, but then we'll double it the second year type of thing. Um, any any uh, kind of pieces of, in, of industry insight we should know about that? Yeah, that's... Um... Actually, a question you asked me in an earlier segment, I meant to bring that point up and then I, I forgot, but uh, the the, uh, the hidden assumptions and the hidden costs that are buried in your contracts with, with your software vendor are, are very real and very important. It could be something as simple as, uh, to your point, you know, our, we, we reserve the right to increase our subscription costs to you by, you know, 3% or 5% a year, or maybe they cap it out, you know, based on inflation, which in today's day and age means that you're going to have a big increase. Um, so that's one thing is sometimes it's, it's sort of blatantly called out in that way to where you can sort of look at that, even though a lot of companies miss it, you at least see it in black and white on paper that they can, and they probably will raise their prices on the software. But the harder thing to catch that so many organizations miss, if, especially if you don't have someone who goes through this process all the time, every day is little, just little, seemingly innocuous bulleted line items within a set of assumptions. So something as simple as, for example, under the assumptions of the SOW, it might say uh, customer shall be responsible for data migration. You know, we'll provide the, you know, we'll provide the, um, we'll, we'll take the data, we'll, we'll upload the, the data into the system, but the customer shall be responsible for cleansing and mapping the data, let's just say. Okay, sounds simple enough, but what organizations don't realize is there's a huge cost and time commitment there. And you have to build that into your project plan. The vendor didn't factor that into their project plan because they're not doing it. You're doing it. So now you've got two problems. One is you haven't you haven't captured that cost and you need to figure out what that's really going to cost and how much effort's going to go into it. And the second thing, the second problem you have to address now is the vendor gave you this plan that assumes you're doing all that, but they didn't factor that into the plan. So now you've got to figure out how to reconcile that. And that's why we always think of these as more program plans that include a vendor's technology plan is just one component of all the different things that need to happen within an overall transformation. Well, that's great information. Thank you for sharing with us. And I I think you do have some hidden costs content too. And we have a blog on that as well. So if you go on our website and and search the hidden costs, um, you can find that kind of more elaborative and more detail um, as well. Um, And with that, our last video for this segment is actually my video um, when I talk about the three hard truths of digital transformation. So I'm going to turn it over to myself, if that's not weird. um, (laughs) It's a little awkward. I know, right? Um, Kyler, how are you today? Great. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show. (laughs) Yeah, right? Um, So after this video, I'd, I'd love it if you could share your fourth hard truth of digital transformation that I didn't cover. So with that, let's play the clip. 
Many times when we start going through a digital transformation or software selection process, vendors can come to us with shiny functionalities, system integrators can tell us how easy it's going to be, but truly it is going to be difficult. I'm Kyler Cheatham from Third Stage Consulting Group and today I'm gonna to cover three hard truths of digital transformation. Number one, it's going to be hard and disruptive to your overall organization. Though there are steps you can put into place to alleviate some of these difficulties on the front end of the project, just remembering to be flexible and to be ready to deal with any difficulties that may come your way, such as any sort of disruption to your supply chain and working with your different partners to forward think these risks when you go into a digital transformation and an overall ERP implementation. Number two is it's going to be expensive and have a significant impact on your overall organization. Budgeting is extremely important when it comes to understanding what new software will cost, what licensing will cost, what resources will cost to support them. So being ready to engage in those conversations as you go through the process is incredibly important and can be difficult. On the other side, your resources when it comes to your human capital management or the overall internal culture and motivation around going through this digital transformation. Sometimes automating processes or changing roles and responsibilities can be very scary when it comes to employees. So ensuring that you have a change management plan that has already redefined roles and responsibilities and are transparently communicating that with your team is extremely important. Number three, ask the experts. There is nothing wrong with outsourcing for additional help and information. It can be a true investment to ensuring that your project is successful. When you work with different vendors, you want to make sure that you have a culture match when it comes to not only the vendor, but the system integrator, but also who's going to be your advocate, who's going to make sure that your needs are met when it comes to this digital transformation. A lot of times we see clients that have internalized this process without reaching out to experts in the ERP field or even in the supply chain management field or whatever transition you're going through and it has significantly hurt their project. Reaching out to experts is a great way, not only through YouTube videos or through online research, but also just having a conversation via an informal sounding board with a consultant agency is always a great recommendation to ensure that you are accessing all of these great resources. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you have questions about your digital transformation or just want to chat about your project in general, please feel free to reach out to us directly. Our contact information is below. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel for more digital transformation content and check out the blogs on our website as well as our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll talk soon. Excellent. So I covered the, that it would be hard, that, that organizations need to be flexible, right? Um, and that it, it might be expensive and it, to expect to spend a significant amount of budget on not only the technology, but also the people side and investing in change management. And um, then I also talked about the importance of kind of culture match and making sure that you invest in a partner that is going to match the culture of your organization or that you can trust.
when it comes to system integrators, independent um, consultants, and even software vendors. That functionality should balance out the culture. So knowing that those were kind of the ones I covered, what would be another hard truth of digital transformation that you would share with our audience? Well, one that sort of ties into all three of those, especially the first two that you mentioned, are would be that it's this transformation, whatever it is, whatever technology you're deploying and whatever process changes might come with that, it, it's probably, it's highly likely that it's going to impact your organization a lot more than you realize. So back to your point about it being harder than you think and you know it's going to cost more than you think and you need to invest and in, in align with the culture and the you know, address that, that human intangible human side sort of building on all those points is that it's going to impact your business a lot more than you think in terms of cultural change, operational change, organizational change, uh, impacts to your IT organization. What does that IT organization need to look like longer term? And, um, the more you can, uh, flush those out early in the process, the better off you're going to be. A lot of times people don't realize it until they they get to go live or they get to end user training and it suddenly becomes real and people start to panic because they realize how big of a change this is going to be. If you can draw all that stuff out, bring it up front and then address it with change management, all that stuff, then, uh, you know, you're going to be a lot better off in those cases. Excellent. Well, that's a great, great fourth tip. Um, so thank you so much for going through those with me today. Again, if you head over to our YouTube channel, we do have a, a playlist for our third anniversary videos and a lot of other great content. Um, we've covered so much, spanned a lot of subjects today. So the, the search function on our blog, on our website, if you want to dig any deeper, we do have um, three blogs we release each week. So a ton of content there as well. Um, but thank you so much, Eric, for taking the time to give us those really important industry insights. And thank you, John, Adam, and Brian for joining us today as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to Thanks to everyone for being on the show. We did cover a lot of stuff. Uh, it, it can be overwhelming and stressful at times of hearing all this stuff, but that's our job and our, our goal is to help speak the, the hard truths, as you put it, uh, about these sorts of projects. And hopefully we've accomplished that here today and in the, the show in general. So, uh, and then thank you for being here again, Kyler. Really appreciate it. Look forward to our next episode. And then most importantly, thank you to the audience for listening here today. Uh, as you mentioned, Kyler, be sure to check us out on YouTube as well as other social media platforms. Uh, I think we're pretty good at just constantly putting information out there and, and best practices out there. And also be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on uh, YouTube and or uh, any of the podcast audio platforms. So that all being said, hope you all have a great week. We'll look forward to seeing the next episode next Wednesday. And I hope you all have a great week in the meantime. Take care and you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Mm-hmm.